On September 20th, 2004, a 22-year-old woman is found murdered in the home of her boyfriend. 16 years later, there are still no arrests and no suspects. What exactly happened to Rebecca Gould? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Rebecca Gould. Welcome to a deep, <laughs> dark, dank, obviously funny, and moist basement. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Hello. It's been one of them days. No doubt. This case has been highly recommended from several people. So, and we jumped into the deep end of the pool on this one, and we're swimming with some big fishes. Oh, good Lord. I mean, I know. But let's talk about, we had our uh, 300th follower on um, Twitter. Vigils in the Dark was our 300th uh, follower. They, they have their own podcast dedicated to uncovering the truth behind unsolved crimes. So very, very similar to us. So, if you're looking for a new podcast, check them out. And along those lines, we had our 200th follower on Instagram, and this was on June 14th. Nice. And it is Days W. Disney, (laughs) and it's a podcast, and it's going to cover the Disney movies, but with a twist, is all it says. What really, what I love... About the fact that everybody can have a podcast and everybody can do do whatever they want. They really help each other out, you know. Yes. Lot, almost all of our followers on Twitter are, are podcast people. And we are, you know, because of that, I've, I've, I've dove into several new podcasts that are simply awesome. But, you know, if podcast people keep... Listening and following and supporting other podcasts, it's 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 a wonderful thing, really. And as I couldn't wait to pop the top, we are <laughs> tapping into our stash from our personal private investigator, and he'll get a chuckle out of that, Mr. Billy. We are sampling the last of this Saddlebox Brewery's beer that you sent us, and we are partaking in the IPA this time, and it is... Very good, and then Billy does not like IPAs, but Billy, you did a good job in picking this one out. Yeah, it's delicious. And for any of our Arkansas listeners, and we have a ton of them, mm. please reach out to us on social media, private messages, instant messages, whatever, and we'll give you a shipping address. So far, we've only had one Arkansas brewery, and it's been good. It's delicious. And we should get some more. So help us out. Oh, last thing before you know, the whole, before we dump it, jump into the case, um, Patreon patrons. By the time you hear this, hopefully you get a nice surprise in your mailbox, and it's just our way of saying thank you for being a patron. We are not going to divulge what it is. Hopefully, they will blow up social media and make you guys jealous if you are not an official patron. Cool, and we are definitely 
we're looking into um, doing some Patreon exclusive stuff. Uh, Mini Me wants to do a whole Patreon side of uh, little mini episodes called Dark Side of the Ring. He's been binge watching that on YouTube, and he's got he's like, you know, Arlo, we've got uh, I, I know about eight mini cases we could do, and I on Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah, I've seen all of those. Those are amazing, but yeah, so I'm down with that. If the reason why we're gonna um, not only to let the uh, Patreons have their own exclusive stuff, but there's no way that anybody wants to hear what we have to say unless they're a Patreon. They're a super fan, so we're going to start doing some, maybe some... Well, I set out a uh, poll of our 13 patrons, <laughs> and we had 100% yes, so we're looking at starting a Discord chat either a couple hours before we record or after we record. Oh, that's cool. And we can discuss the previous week's case, what yeah, they thought cool. about it. Yeah. And it'll be kind of exclusive there. And then maybe reviewing some yeah, mysterious it's just stuff balls. that we, 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 we we'll observe move. ourselves. Like, for example, the Netflix uh, just released the Unsolved Mysteries. I binge-watched all six episodes of that shit. And, man. They did not disappoint. They did not. And what was crazy is the fact that Six cases that we, that I personally hadn't heard of. Never heard of them. And the episode one, especially. We, oh we may cover God. that in the near future. We really do. How did we not cover that case already? But enough of us in our babble. <laughs> so we're jumping in the deep end, boys and girls. Oh, yes. Here we go. So, just like Coach said in the opening, on Monday, September 20th, 2004, Miss Rebecca Gould dropped her boyfriend, Casey McCullough, off at the Sonic in Melbourne, Arkansas, sometime after 8 a.m. Rebecca was 5 foot 3 inches, 103 pounds, blonde hair, brown eyes. Around 8.30 that morning, she stopped at the Possum Truck convenience store and purchased a breakfast sandwich and a coffee. The young lady who served Rebecca was Miss Jessica Schrabel. And she remembers that morning because she followed Rebecca out the door to buy a newspaper. And she stated that as she looked up from retrieving the paper, she saw Rebecca's little 1997 black Chevy Cavalier pull out of the parking lot and head right. And so that is nothing suspicious. That would be the direction that if you knew where she was going, that's where she should have been heading. And that direction is, and would have, put her back at Casey's home. Now, she was supposed to go back to Casey's house where she had... Now, who's Casey now? Casey McCullough, the boyfriend. I've already stated that. She no. <laughs> did you? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. I'll shut up there. She was supposed to go back to Casey's house <laughs> where she had stayed the weekend... She was planning on packing her things up so that she could pick her sister up later that morning or early that afternoon, and the two of them were going to head back to Fayetteville so they could begin college the next day. So the next day, which is Tuesday, September 21st, police arrive at Casey's house and find Rebecca's car parked out front. Inside the home, they find what has been described as a piss poor job of a cleanup yeah and there's going to be blood everywhere the uh the um the mattress 
is going to be soaked in blood, and the, the perpetrator simply flipped it over. Uh, they're going to take the sheets. They're going to take all the, the what what the have linens. you, and the linings, and put it in the washing machine, but they're not even going to start it. So there's going to be blood. There's going to be a copious amount of blood found in the washing machine. And, yeah, it, it was very piss poor job at cleaning up the scene. Now, law enforcement, to say they have tight lips on this case is an understatement. They have not released any facts, so conjecture abounds. But they would not state whether or not the sheets had actually gone through a wash cycle. Someone had tried to clean the floors, but traces of blood were discovered as well as specks of blood on the baseboards and on the back porch. Rebecca's purse, her car keys, her cell phone, and her clothes were left at Casey's house. Her Pomeranian dog, Lady, was left apparently unharmed. The breakfast sandwich that she had purchased at the Possum Trot was found uneaten. That, to me, is the strangest thing. Like, seriously. The other strange thing is, Casey owned an upright piano, and there was a missing leg. And it is unclear to this day whether that leg has ever been found, whether it was collected by law enforcement, or none of those. Hmm. So according to the Baxter Bulletin, and this is a headline, Gould was reported missing Tuesday morning at 8.30 a.m. and was reported last seen Monday about 4.45 p.m. on Highway 58 near Gine. The Izzard County Sheriff's Office conducted a massive manhunt for Rebecca. There were hundreds of volunteer searchers. Family members were plastering missing posters all over the county. And to say that Guyon is a small town is a huge <laughs> understatement. Seriously. The population in 2017 was 86 people. Jesus. Now, that headline in the Baxter Bulletin that states that she was last seen on Monday around 4.45 p.m. would come back to be a false report because no one had seen her after she left the possum trot. Really? Yes, sir. Hmm. So exactly a week after her last sighting on Monday, September 27, 2004, Rebecca's body was found off Arkansas Highway 9 five miles south of Melbourne near the Devil's Knob WMA and it was her body was located down at Steep Embankment. She was only wearing a t-shirt and panties. Now, disclaimer, warning, whatever, if you happen to listen to our podcast with your kids, you have other problems, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. We are going to have to actually get into some of the autopsy findings, some descriptions of wounds... And this is not meant to degrade Rebecca's memory. This is all public knowledge. And we're going to try to do this justice. But if you have a weak stomach for this kind of thing, or if you have young children listening, please preview this before you <laughs> let them listen to it. So a uh, Mrs. Jennifer Buchholz states that through independent investigations, she has uncovered that insect activity was consistent with Rebecca having been killed seven days prior 
and her body having laid outside in the elements for that amount of time. Terrible. Yes. The weather the week that she was reported missing up until when her body was found was unseasonably warm for September in Arkansas. The temperature was in the mid-80s every day, and there was no rain reported. Now, a little background on Ms. Jennifer Buchholz, and she goes by Jen. Jen is an independent investigator and faculty member of the Criminal Justice and Forensic Science Department at the American Military University. She is a former U.S. Army counterintelligence agents, agent, a decorated veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, has worked for the Arizona Department of Correction and the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in New York City. She wrote a multi-part series on this case, and you can find that at inpublicsafetyalloneword.com. Now, the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the left side of the head, shattering Rebecca's nasal structure and leaving five fractures on the left side of her skull. There was no evidence of sexual assault noted, but due to decomposition, there was no way to determine if there were any defensive wounds or external bruising. Now we're going to talk about the means, the motive, and the opportunity. So we begin with the means. Her killer had to have a vehicle and a weapon. The vehicle, of course, is a no-brainer because her body was not discovered at Casey's trailer. And we refer to his home as a trailer. We refer to it as his house. It's basically a trailer. And we'll put a picture of this up on the website. The website, like we have a website. (laughs) We're dreaming. We'll put a picture of his residence up on social media. Now, the killer would have had to be strong enough to drag her body out of the home, load her in a vehicle, and then unload it on the side of the highway. Or, it may have been two perpetrators. I think the uh, the two perpetrators is probably the most uh, likely scenario. Just, just for the fact that the way this occurred and everything that happened... Two people is is most likely, in my opinion. Now, the motive, which is probably one of the more difficult things to nail down, we know that it was not robbery because everything she had was still there. The only thing missing was her, her suitcase, and a piano leg. But was she targeted? Was this a case of a threat gone wrong? Was it a case of rage? Was it an argument gone wrong? We don't know. Lastly, we're going to look at the opportunity. If this was premeditated, then the killer would have had to have had prior knowledge that A, Casey would be at work, and B, Rebecca would be by herself for a few hours that morning before leaving to pick up her sister. The crime scene would contradict a premeditation because it is half-assed at best. This leaves us with a killer just happening to find Rebecca at Casey's. Now, the murder weapon. What weapon was used to kill Rebecca? We don't know. 
And if we did know what weapon or what the weapon was, that would tell us a lot more about the perpetrator. Unless police have this murder weapon and are keeping it hush-hush and no one has ever leaked this fact, we have to go on the theory that it was not found with her body, it was not found at Casey's home, or anywhere else for that matter. We do not know anything about the weapon except that it must have been heavy enough to inflict the injuries we discussed with just one or two blows. Yeah, it's clearly the piano leg that is missing. That's what leads, you know, if it's a missing piano leg and she has multiple fractures to her head, it's almost a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. That's what was used. Yeah. Now, being struck in the head would lead investigators to theorize that this was an act of emotion or rage from the perpetrator. This was very personal. Well, I mean, to commit murder in any fashion has got to have something to do with rage. Yes. Miss Buchold states the following, quote, This was a personal attack likely stemming from an altercation, argument, or interaction the killer had with her in the 48 hours prior to her death. We can deduce this because had the in interaction occurred prior to the weekend before she died, the killer would have either, one, planned out the crime, which would have resulted in a much more efficient murder and cleanup, or two, not gone through with the murder because enough time would have passed for his or her emotions to subside. Rebecca's injuries, the rushed-up cleanup, and the way her body was disposed all indicate that this was not a premeditated crime. And that is a direct quote from Miss Jen Bucholtz on one of her articles. And I would have to agree with her because in the heat of the moment, you lash out and then you go into panic mode about cleaning up. If you had premeditated her death, it would have been a lot, the cleanup would have been a lot more thorough. There wouldn't have been blood-soaked sheets in the washing machine. There wouldn't have been a mattress with blood stains that had been flipped over with bloody pillows under the bed. So again, I like the way Miss Buchholz comes up with her point of view, and we happen to agree. Now, if you have followed this case at all, if you have heard of this case at all, you will know that Catherine Townsend did a wonderful job on her podcast, Helen Gone Season 1. And I personally did not uh, listen to it, S uh, specifically because the people that had suggested this case to us are kind of contentious with this uh, young lady. So I abstained from uh, listening to it. But I had, I did listen to her season two about Janie Ward, and man, I think she does a great job. Now, I had little sidebar here. I had, when we <laughs> covered Janie Ward, I got four episodes into Helen gone season one, and I'm like, they're not talking about Janie at all. They're talking about some lady named Rebecca. And I call coach, and I'm like, dude, are you sure this is being covered? And he's like, no, dumbass. Season two. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. That was the best. So I went back and re-listened to her <laughs> podcast after we did Janie Ward. But I also remember, and when I say she did a great job, I mean she was on boots on the ground in Arkansas, and she 
interviewed a lot of people. Yeah, she did. And like, it's just, it's amazing how well you can do a podcast if you're getting paid for doing it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I personally believe that this podcast could be amazing. If we were making, if we were just being bankrolled by someone. If we were being uh, paid by somebody. So, well, they would probably also have to have, we would have to have meetings with their lawyers and they'd be like, no, 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 no. It's like, we listen to a few episodes. And, and there's no way in hell we're giving y'all nothing. Nah, we're just going to go ahead and say pass. So, yeah. All right. So getting back to the case, <laughs> Catherine and her podcast, and just like Miss Buchholz stated in her articles, Believe the piano leg is the murder weapon. I, I believe that as well. And we do, yeah, we do too. Casey would state that the piano leg was missing when police searched the home the day after she dropped him off at work. If someone confronts Rebecca and things get out of hand, who is going to think of grabbing a piano leg instead of, say, a weapon of opportunity, such as a knife, a frying pan, a baseball bat? I don't know, man. It's, it, that, I mean, you can say that all you want, but, it, I mean, a piano leg is a very effective weapon. Maybe they walked in, they saw her, they they knew they were they were enraged, clearly, and they just grabbed it. And it could be an opportunistic weapon. if And it could, if the killer knew the house, the fact that the piano leg was loose and easily removable... And hypothetically, an argument between Rebecca and her killer may have taken place near the piano, and this argument turns physical. One of them could have like shoved the other one into the piano, and the leg dislodged then, and that would have made it a weapon of opportunity. Now, playing devil's advocate on both sides of that, <laughs> as the perpetrator was removing Rebecca's body... They could have bumped into the leg, leaving evidence on it, such as blood or their fingerprints, and just took it to get rid of it. Hmm. Maybe. Opportunistic? I mean, I, I'm just saying, like, I think the, the, the piano leg was the murder weapon. So I'm thinking that they took it with them for that reason, but after the fact, after the, the murder occurred. I think that they probably knew that their DNA was on it fingerprints or what whatever and they just took it with them so we're going to go down the list of possible weapons and we're going to shoot holes all in these so let's <laughs> think about a bat now if a bat was used the perpetrator would have either had to bring it to casey's home retrieve it from their vehicle as a means of threatening rebecca and then rage took over and it was used in the act again that shows a little bit of premeditation and we've agreed that it's not really premeditated. Well, we don't know that. Well, no, we don't I mean, know we shit. Can't, uh, yeah, I mean, tr truthfully, we don't know shit about fuck my man. <laughs> 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 but I don't think a bat was used. No. What about a gun? Again, a gun could be used as a means of threatening Rebecca, and while not wanting to shoot her, the perpetrator could have pistol whipped her in a fit of rage, but... Why is, the, why is the piano leg missing if that's the case? Miss Buchold states that a handgun could have easily torn into the men, I'm going to kill this meningeal 
artery, causing her to bleed out over the very few minutes that she was struck. The barrel of the weapon could have caused the linear fractures found on her skull. The force of the blow would have knocked her to the right if she had been sitting on the left side of the bed. Her head would have landed towards the top of the bed, which is where the preponderance of blood was found on the mattress. The cleanup, or lack of, could point to this being a rage killing as well. The killer attempted to clean up but left key evidence behind. This would point to the killer becoming rushed for time, having been interrupted or scared by a passing vehicle. And we're going to get into the autopsy more in depth in a minute. But I don't believe a, a handgun was used because it seems like if I bring a gun, again, that leads to premeditation. But also, if shit gets out of hand and we get into an argument, you're more likely to pull the trigger in a fit of rage than you are pistol whip someone. <laughs> or it could have been Guido and he just had a flat tire in the middle of Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Now we're going to get into transporting the body. Everyone that's looked at this case all agrees that the body was transported from Casey's home in some type of vehicle. You just didn't throw her over your shoulder and <laughs> take her down the road. You don't think? Nah. Maybe. The killer, if we're going on a single perpetrator, would have had to have had the strength to carry her out of the home, load her up, and then unload her on the side of Highway 9. If you look at a map of where Casey's home is located and the place that Rebecca was ultimately found... There is no logical reason as to why they chose that location. The killer would have picked that location due to it being some distance from their own residence. This would distance the killer from the body and place her where the perpetrator would not have to drive by the body in their day-to-day -day activities. And we'll get into more of this when we get into the geographical profile, but... I like this line of thinking. If you've followed any of the behavioral science type stuff, they will tell you that if you're going to dump a body, it's usually out away from where you would travel back and forth from it on your daily routine. Even serial killers place their victims outside their normal comfort zone, even if they revisit them. Now let's get into that disposal the decide suggests that the killer had no remorse and that Rebecca was equivalent to a bag of trash that they would throw down a hill. And unfortunately, that little pull-off on Highway 9 has what people have decided, or I guess decided and people that are not from that area, described as basically a place where there's old washing machines, there's old... Uh, dryers, refrigerators, they just dump shit off the side of the road. The manner in which the body was found also leads credence to the killer placing her on the side of the highway and pushing her off the embankment. By disposing of the body in that manner, we can theorize that the killer did not care for Rebecca while she was alive and had zero remorse for killing her. Her body was not wrapped or covered. Most of the time, if you see a body that is covered after death or buried, that leads to a personal connection between the killer and the deceased. 
This is not the case here. The killer in this case was worried about being caught or discovered by a passing motorist. So it was as quick as they could get that her body out of the vehicle and down that embankment. Now, Miss Jennifer Buchholz states that she believes the opposite of what we just theorized. She states, and she had actually has gone down to Arkansas and she visited the disposal site and we will put a picture of where her body was found in the highway and you can get a better feel for this at the disposal site that the embankment was not steep enough for a body to roll down. Bodies do not roll well because it's dead weight. You have flailing limbs. This leads Miss Bucholtz to conclude that the killer would have had to transport Rebecca's body down the embankment and place her at the bottom of said embankment where it was finally discovered. She states that, quote, it's most likely that the killer drove their vehicle to the bottom of the embankment to be out of view while unloading the body. And if you are able to get your hands on an aerial picture of that area in or around 2004, driving to the bottom of the hill would have also hid the killer's vehicle and Rebecca's body from passing cars off of Highway 9. And if the killer had shut the engine off when they were disposing of Rebecca's body, they would have been able to hear any vehicle approaching along Highway 9. Her body was found on the east side of Highway 9, and this means the killer crossed over to the opposite side of the road in order to unload her body. This would have added additional risk to anyone else driving because that would put a passing motorist wondering why there was a vehicle facing the wrong direction on the road. Every paved route from Casey's home to the disposal site takes at least 20 minutes and would require the killer to pass through the town of Melbourne. There were several more desolate places that the body could have been placed that were closer to Casey's home. It would make more sense to place the body in one of those areas so that suspicions would fall on Casey. Miss Bucholtz goes on to state that her and her husband visited Melbourne and the site, like we just previously said, and upon investigating routes, they found a well-maintained dirt road that led almost directly from Casey's house to the disposal site. And on a map, the road is labeled as County Road 3. It leads to a road labeled 159 and then to a dirt two-track trail. The map indicates that 159 is not a, th a through road, but they discovered that in fact it is. She states that her and her husband had no difficulty in driving the route in his pickup truck, and the only thing that stopped them from crossing over to Highway 9 to that pull-off is a gate that blocks that path. However, that gate was not there in 2004, and it only took them 10 to 15 minutes to reach the disposal site from Casey's home. All right, so we're going to go through the autopsy report. And for this, we reached out to Miss Bucholtz, and she was very helpful. She was very polite, informative. Um, she treated us like we knew her from years ago, and I can't say enough nice things about her. Now, she sent us her review of the autopsy report that was conducted by Frank Peretti. He was the lead medical examiner for the Arkansas State Police. 
And if you know anything about true crime and you have ever heard of the West Memphis Three case, he is the same medical examiner that conducted the autopsies. The what? Of the three West victims. Memphis Three? Let me tell you, sidebar, let me tell you what my <laughs> lovely wife did. Oh, yeah? On a road trip back from the Midwest, she decides to stop in West Memphis really? to spend the night. Okay. And she doesn't pick the best part of town. <laughs> she was like, is it bad that there was a 10-foot fence with razor wire around the hotel I stayed at? <laughs> yes, honey, that's a key thing <laughs> saying you're in the wrong side of town. Yeah, that's a big red flag. <laughs> I'm like, honey, every town has the wrong side of town, and you picked it in West Memphis. All right, so back to our, sorry about that. So, yes, he was the same medical examiner that did the autopsies on the three victims in the West Memphis Three case. All right, and we are going to read this autopsy report. And I do apologize, but there's no way that we could have done this report justice by trying to put it in our own words because Ms. Buchholz did a phenomenal job. While in Arkansas, I was able to finally read and analyze the original autopsy report. Prior to having access to this document, I was under the impression that the majority of damage to Rebecca's skull was along the middle left side frontal and periatal bones. <laughs> In fact, many of the of her injuries were much closer to the front of her face, basically the front left quadrant of her skull. She sustained a shattered nasal cavity and four additional skull fractures near her left temple. The nasal cavity incurred so much damage that four pieces of bone were displaced, which meant those bone fragments were completely detached from the primary bones of the nose. Jesus. Her overall skull structure was still intact, meaning her skull was not depressed or caved in. It is likely that Rebecca's meningeal artery, located near the left temple, was burst or severed, causing her to lose a vast amount of blood. The damage to her nose would have also resulted in significant blood loss, and either of these two injuries, independent of each other, would have resulted in, de in death without prompt medical attention. It is very important to note that assessing her external injuries post-mortem was incredibly difficult because of advanced decomposition. The average temperature around Melbourne between September the 20th and September 27th, 2004 was in the mid 80s. That combined with the six to seven day duration that Rebecca's body was exposed to the elements resulted in advanced decomposition and destruction by flies and maggots. It is even noted in the official autopsy report that Rebecca could have been strangled or sustained additional superficial defensive wounds, but rapid decomposition made it impossible to definitively determine. In addition, the coroner found no evidence of sexual assault. However, it should again be noted that the le level of decomposition would have made it impossible to conclusively make a determination. In reviewing the official autopsy report, I also noted some new information that I had not been aware of previously. For example, Five millimeters of a dark reddish-black fluid was observed in Rebecca's left lung. Also, none of her teeth were loose, broken, or missing, 
and her toxicology report came back negative for drugs. A little alcohol was detected in her her system, but this most certainly was a result of decomposition. Alcohol is a natural byproduct of this process. All right, she goes on to state that she consulted a level one trauma nurse, Carly Doberaner, to evaluate Rebecca's injuries. The first thing she tackled was whether it was one or two strikes that killed Rebecca. The injuries described in the autopsy would lead speculation to two distinct blows. First, her nose was broken in multiple places. Second, her skull was fractured, resulting in a minimum of five fracture lines on the left side. There were two separate injuries that do not connect to each other. If they were the result of just one blow, fractures or damage to the bones between the nose and the left side of her head, such as her left eye socket or cheekbone, would be expected. No such damage to any skeletal structure between those two areas of injury were noted in the autopsy report. It is likely that she sustained the blow to the nose first. This would have stunned her, resulting in her bringing her hands up to cover her face and turning to the opposite side of where the blow came from. If she was hit in the head first, it would be almost impossible to have a direct blow to the front of the nose. The blow to the nose would account for a lot of blood and could have caused problems breathing. The blow to her nose appears to have come directly from the front. This angle of injury sits at approximately 75 degrees from horizontal downward to the left when looking at her face straight on. This suggests her killer was right-handed and swung the weapon at a 75-degree angle while standing in front and slightly to Rebecca's right. How far to the right is contingent on the length of the weapon and the length of the killer's arms. It is harder to decipher the angle at which the blow to the left side of her head was delivered due to incomplete descriptions in the autopsy report and without the photographs and x-rays of Rebecca's skull. It does appear that this injury is consistent with the one to her nose as it has approximately the same downward angle from front to back. Now, basically, we'll put that in basement terms. (laughs) (laughs) It appears that from what we just read, and this is us trying to break this down, It appears that either Rebecca was standing up and sat down on the edge of the bed, and that is when she was struck and at a downward angle because she was only five foot three. Unless her attacker was the same height, it would have been a more horizontal blow instead of the 75 degree downward to the left. Now, I do like the fact that she ties this first blow to her nose because it makes sense that if you're not, you don't see it coming and you reach down and grab that, let's just go ahead and say the piano leg Mm -hmm. and you hit her in the face, right square in the nose, it's going to shatter her nose. It's a, it's going to stun the shit out of her, but as as much force as they said that it it happened, she has five pieces of bone that probably went into her airway. mm -hmm. Probably, you know, she's choking. Yeah. Like, and then she's going to re- raise her hands up in front of her face and curl away from where the the blow came from, which leaves her left side of her skull exposed, and that's when the second hit came. That makes sense. And I do like the fact that they tie this together because the eye socket and the cheekbone is not broke. Because if it was one humongous 
forceful blow, it would have shattered her nose, her cheekbone, and that eye socket. Yeah, absolutely. So I do like the fact that she goes and she gets some outside source to look at this. And I will say this, this case and researching this case, I have I have a new found respect for all of the professionals that were consulted in this case, the amount of knowledge that they possess just to be able to look at an autopsy report without seeing x-rays and determine these kind of things is phenomenal because like I said earlier, you know, I had listened to Helen gone season one halfway through it by mistake. By accident. Yeah. <laughs> and I never, and I'm not, this is not a, a, a slot on Catherine Townsend at all. I just personally, when listening to, and I do this with all other cases, it's I don't not, find myself. It sounds like a slide. No, it really isn't. It, it is. No, it's not. <laughs> I don't find myself trying to figure out when they, when you read something, well, that, you know, they were hit twice in the skull or twice in the head and the nose were, was broke and the right side of the head was caved in. I don't find myself until this case, after reading this, trying to picture which way they were swinging. This is a, is a great great thing that they did mm-hmm. again it's not a slot it is. Townsend. it is <laughs> and she was so nice to us she is very nice lady and you no i'm not it is not a completely insulted her okay so let's get back to <laughs> i have not insulted her <laughs> the blow to her nose appears to have come like we said directly from the front this would account for no visible defensive wounds on her body because she was taken by surprise. Uh, I, I think that's 100% accurate. Now, we do have to take in consideration that her body was found in an advanced state of decomposition, which prevents anybody from knowing for sure if she had defensive wounds. But there were no bone bruises or internal injuries that may have indicated she raised her arms against the weapon as it was swung. Again, it ties directly to she was taken by surprise and off guard that anything was about to happen. The lack of defensive wounds also would lead credence to the killer striking quickly, making sure Rebecca had no time to react. And it's probably, I would say on a scale of Percentage-wise, I would go as high as 60% that this strike probably occurred one-handed to keep her from seeing you reach down and grip something like a piano leg with both hands. Okay. Now, if the killer had used both arms to swing the murder weapon, it would have taken at least a second or two longer to set the swing up, which would have forewarned Rebecca that something was about to happen, and then she could have either laid over on the bed, put her arms up, you know, jumped back, any plethora of things that could have happened. A swing with two hands probably would have resulted in more horizontal injuries as well and not at the 75-degree angle. Now, without knowing the length and weight of the weapon or the strength and the hand-eye coordination of the killer, it's impossible to dismiss the possibility that the killer used both arms to swing. However... The evidence that we have 
suggest it is most likely that Rebecca's killer delivered two very quick blows in succession with just their right hand. Mm -hmm. This would account for her lack of defensive wounds, the 75-degree angle of the injuries, and the angle of attack and and the veracity of the wounds would not lead to a conclusion of an accident. This would not be... You couldn't say she fell off the side of the bed and hit her face on the floor. Oh, no. This was no accident. No. This was cold-blooded murder. While the injuries are consistent, and we're trying to do our due diligence with the piano leg, it is also consistent with a baseball bat, a tire tool, a beer or a wine bottle, or even a towel rack. Because no. since we do not have the no. actual oh, come on, man. autopsy report, the measurements, the x-rays, but... This was not a beer bottle. What we can say is the angle and the location of her injuries would indicate that the weapon that was used was cylindrical or round, Ooh. which leads us more to the... Piano leg? Yes. Maybe? Very good. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you win Final Jeopardy. If, say, a two-by-four was used, no. the injuries would have been very different. Now, the nose injuries could have come from a forceful punch to the face, but the side of the skull injuries would require so much force that the killer would have fractured their hand. I would even go out on a limb and say that the killer would have fractured their hand with that much force to a punch to the nose. I mean, you're talking about absolutely shattering her nose. Now, I know she's five foot three, 103 pounds, soaking wet. But that but doesn't change the, the physics, the biology of her nose, just because she's a small person. Well, and it would also, that's going to be... Real easy to find somebody with a fucked up hand. Agreed. And in the town of Melbourne, it's going to be real easy for someone to go, well, I saw Jimmy yesterday pumping gas and he had his hand fucked up. We don't have that in this case, boys and girls, because a hand wasn't used. All right. So, back on track. <laughs> the injury to the nose would have led to a tremendous blood loss but not enough to result in death. It is probable that a secondary effect from the blow to the side of her skull led to her death. This would result in it being more likely that the men middle meningeal artery was damaged or ruptured internally, resulting in the blood being contained within the skull. The skull, unlike tissue, is not able to expand. However, the brain is composed of tissue and is compressible. As the space inside the skull fills and blood continues to pump out of the ruptured vessels, the increasing amount of blood begins to place pressure on the brain. This compresses the brain and forces it into an unnatural shape and space. If the pressure is not relieved, the brain areas that control breathing and heart function would have been affected. Now, warning again. And if Rebecca's family happens to find our little bitty podcast, <laughs> please know, I mean, no disrespect. This is just the facts. Unfortunately, Rebecca probably did not die immediately after being hit. Neither of her injuries would have been life-threatening 
if she was taken immediately for medical treatment. Mm. It's very likely she continued to live for several hours after her killer struck her in the head. That's that's terrible. Even more disturbing is the fact that she was probably alive while she was transported and left at the disposal site. Now, the killer would have thought she was dead due to her being unconscious. I do apologize, but unfortunately, we have to cover that. Yeah. And our deepest, again, our deepest condolences to Miss Gould, her family, her father, her remaining Whew. sisters. I Sidebar, <laughs> her picture, while I did not know Rebecca, I've taught 20 Rebeccas. And... It's just, this is just, uh, this is a difficult case. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. She was definitely like the typical all-American girl, you know. She was spunky. She was not, she wasn't going back down from a fight. That I, I have a lot of respect for Rebecca that I've never met. Mm-hmm. For someone her age, you know, to start going to college, trying to get her life right, you know, making a move to change her path, um, and then for her life to be cut so short is so so sad. We should do like um, happier mysteries. Yeah, we're going. I'm going to go home and watch like <laughs> Bugs Bunny, <laughs> the real Bugs Bunny. So Elmer still has a gun. Oh Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can we like make it where like Mysterious Brews covers like happy cases? Because this one is not. No, this one is going to result in me pounding some. Liquid encouragement. Yeah, this one's terrible, man. All right. Back at it. Fluid in Rebecca's lungs. We talked and just briefly mentioned in the autopsy summary that there were five milliliters of a reddish-black fluid in Rebecca's left lung. Jesus. This fluid was blood, and the reason it was partially black is because of the long passage of time between her death and when her body was found. Over time, as blood coagulates and ages, it takes on a much darker shade. There are two reasons as to why blood was in Rebecca's lungs. One, blood from her nose injury drained through the nasal cavity down her airway and into her lungs. Or, two, she aspirated blood before she died. Aspiration refers to the breathing in of a foreign material, in this case, would have been fragments of her nose and aspirate into only one lung. Good Lord. Yeah. All right. Not a pleasant way to go. No. Let's just put it that way. Now, let's dispel this CSI. We're going to stick a meat thermometer in your liver, and we're going to get exactly the time of death. (laughs) That does not happen. Time of death is hard to determine. Yeah, very much so. Even if they happen up on the body quickly, they cannot pinpoint an exact time of death. Now, there was an independent review of Rebecca's autopsy arranged by one of her family members a couple years ago that stated that they did an average age of the maggots that were found on her body to be approximately 6.25 days. And this would match up with her death occurring on that Monday, September the 20th. 
This also puts to bed the rumor that Rebecca's body was stored in a car trunk or other enclosed area prior to being moved to the dump site. If this had been the case, the size of the blowflies and maggots would be much smaller because it would have taken longer for those flies to access her body. Now, the toxicology report came back negative for drugs and only a trace amount of alcohol, which again we, say, we stated was a byproduct of decomposition. However, there was a seven-day gap between her death and when the fluid around and in her lungs were tested for drugs. Because of this long period of time, the results may have been unreliable or inaccurate. The takeaway is that we cannot know for sure whether there were drugs in her system or an atypical amount of drugs were in her system. Even if we had toxicology results that were 100% accurate, it would not affect the manner of her death, which was homicide. So, what does all this mean? We've gone all through the autopsy report. We've talked about toxicology. We've talked about time of death. The valuation of the autopsy report supports the theory that Rebecca knew her killer. Since we have shot down the theory that she was asleep at the time of her attack, she likely interacted with her killer wearing just a T-shirt and the underwear that she was found in. Well, unless that they dressed her in that post-mortem, which is possible. With that much blood, it's going to be I hard mean, to do. Likely. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's not likely. No, likely, but I understand. But... Yeah, I know where you're coming from. Yeah. But this does lead credence to and we kind of talked off air if she heard or saw a stranger coming up to the trailer she would have put on more clothes mm-hmm. i agree with that her killer was probably not a stranger it was probably someone she trusted and allowed to get close to her and didn't feel embarrassed talking to or interacting with just a t-shirt and panties on The actions in which her killer took the murder are also indicative of a personal relationship. A stranger with no ties to Casey's house or Rebecca would not have A, attempted to clean up the house, or B, dispose of the body because they would be at risk of being discovered. There had to be a very strong motive to move her body from Casey's home It is likely the killer felt leaving the body at the crime scene was a bigger risk than moving it. Hmm. And that leaving it would point to them as the primary suspect. The conclusion drawn from the autopsy that Rebecca likely suffered two blows to the head is a crucial part of proving the killer's intent. When a a victim suffers only one head injury, it could indicate the attacker did not mean to kill her. This does not appear to be the case in Rebecca's attack. Rebecca's killer made a conscious decision to hit her two separate times in the head. No matter how short the length of time between the blows, the killer could have chosen not to deliver the second hit. Even after the second hit, they could have rushed Rebecca to the hospital and she would have likely lived. The killer wanted Rebecca dead. Clearly. We are now going to dive into the geographic profile. The what, 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 what? Geographic profiling, coach, is dealing with murder or serial murder, and it examines patterns between where victims are abducted and where their bodies are found. 
Geographic profiling helps investigators identify possible suspects by making logical deductions about where they reside. Okay. Although it cannot pinpoint a particular individual or an exact address, it can assist investigators in narrowing down the potential suspect pool and the area or neighborhood where said suspect may live. Hmm. While geographic profiling is most commonly used to investigate serial crimes, it can also be applied to cases involving a single murder. For example, most killers will not dispose of a body in close proximity to their residence or their place of work. Instead, perpetrators seek out a disposal site that they believe appears out of the way and disconnected from their daily life. Many killers believe that disposing of a body away from their residence and daily activities will deter law enforcement and outsiders from suspecting their involvement. However, in most cases, this attempt to create a false sense of distance leads to further scrutiny. When investigators are presented with a body that has been moved from the primary crime scene, they should begin their suspect search outside the immediate area of that disposal site rather than stay close to it. While analyzing this case, Ms. Buchold states that she used many geographic profiling tools, tools to draw conclusions about Rebecca's killer and their actions. During her visit to Melbourne, she deduced that the killer most likely drove a route along several dirt roads to move Rebecca's body from the murder scene at Casey McCullough's house to where she was found off Highway 9. This route is significantly shorter than any possible route on paved roads and allowed the killer to avoid nearby towns. This indicates that the killer lived in the local area and knew the back roads very well. A stranger would not have known about those unmarked roads or taken the time to consult a map. Based on geographic profiling, Rebecca's killer likely chose the disposal site because it was located away from their daily activities, including their place of employment, school if they attended school, nearest town where they ran errands or other locations they frequented or for entertainment purposes. Most of these activities probably revolved around Batesville, the closest large town, which is about a 30-minute drive southeast of Melbourne. If this is true, Rebecca's killer likely lived somewhere around the east side of Melbourne along Route 58 or in or near the town of Guyon. Someone living in this stretch would never need to pass by the place where they discovered Rebecca's body when they drive to the nearest three closest large towns of Melbourne, Mountain View, and Batesville. The killer's decision about where to dispose of Rebecca's body may have been purposeful or it may have been subconscious, but regardless, it can provide clues about their mindset. To learn more about this, Ms. Buchholz consulted with a former colleague and good friend of hers, a Dr. A. Gans. She is a clinical psychologist at the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Florence, Colorado, which includes the Federal Supermax facility. She has extensive training and experience in communicating with and researching the behaviors of various types of criminals. Dr. Gans explained that killers often dispose of a body away from their daily travels and activities because it provides physical and emotional distance. Choosing a distance, a distant location offers stress relief for the killers because they do not have to drive by the body in the days after disposing it. 
This allows them the opportunity to deny or suppress their own guilt because it's one less reminder of their criminal actions. Dr. Gans also discussed how the psychological concept of cognitive dissonance can be applied to Rebecca's murder case. Cognitive dissonance refers to a situation that involves conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors and causes mental discomfort for an individual. This discomfort often leads them to alter those attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors to reduce the associated mental stress. More generally, it is a way for people to justify their behavior in a way that helps them live with their actions. It is not only people who have committed crimes who experience cognitive dissonance, but also soldiers, for example, who have been to war and engaged in combat. Dr. Gans postured that Rebecca's murder likely experienced cognitive dissonance regarding their opinion of themselves, their view of their relationship with Rebecca, and the knowledge that they killed her. This type of internal conflict leads a person to seek out ways to avoid evidence or reminds them of the crime. For Rebecca's killer, this would have likely led them to stay away from the disposal site, not to participate in the search for her body, and or not attend the funeral. The killer's participation in any of these activities would have been a stark reminder of their criminal action. Applying these techniques about how and why killers choose particular disposal sites can influence the investigative strategy of a case. Analyzing map data and imagery provides clues about the thinking pattern of the killer, the actions taken in the aftermath of a murder, and the most likely area in which a perpetrator lives. Now again, we reached out to Miss Buchholz and she was very nice and forthcoming And she provided us with a list of questions that she was presented with, and we wanted to go over those now. Let's do it. (laughs) All right, question. There's a rumor that Rebecca's suitcase was missing from Casey's house. Do you think the suitcase was used to transport her body? Answer. It is possible that her suitcase was used to transport her body. There is also... A potential that the police collected the suitcase's evidence and have it in their custody. Without the investigative file, we cannot know for sure whether it is missing or whether they have it in their evidence room. If the suitcase is, in fact, missing, there are two theories Ms. Buchholz has as to what it may have been used for. The killer may have used it to hide Rebecca's body while transporting it to the disposal site, as mentioned in her previous article. This is her speaking. I highly doubt he or she placed her in his or her vehicle without wrapping or disguising her in some way. If the suitcase was used, I believe it was an afterthought, meaning they first carried or dragged the body out of the house, maybe wrapped it in a blanket or other bedding, and placed it in a vehicle. Upon doing the quick cleanup of the scene, they may have walked out to their vehicle and realized Rebecca's wounds were bleeding slash leaking more than they had anticipated, making it obvious that they had a dead body in the vehicle. They may have then re-entered the house to obtain the suitcase and placed her body in it to contain the blood. Reports are that Rebecca's clothes were found folded on the mattress, which had been stripped of its sheets, so it makes sense that they first conducted a hasty cleanup of the scene removed the sheets from the bed, emptied the clothes from the suitcase in order to use it. 
the killer may have used the suitcase to dispose of the murder weapon and any other items from the house that had blood on them. If this was the case, they may have placed those items in the suitcase soon after the murder and taken both the body and suitcase with them when they left for the disposal site. Or they may have done it when they returned to the scene after disposing of the body. I lean toward the latter theory to the fact that bloody pillows were found under the bed. This indicates to me that the killer placed them there temporarily with the intent of disposing of them later. With the pillows being out of sight, they likely forgot about them when they returned to the scene, which is why they were found by law enforcement. Had they used the suitcase to dispose of evidence around the same time as disposing of the body, it follows that they probably would have placed the bloody pillows into that suitcase at that time. There would have been no reason to hide them under the bed. Question. Do you think there were more than one person involved in Rebecca's murder? I personally do, yes. Answer. (laughs) Although we can't know for sure, I do not think it's probable that a second person assisted in either the murder or the cleanup of the scene. The injuries to Rebecca are indicative of two blows from one person in quick succession. If there were numerous areas of injury on different parts of her body and which indicated more than one type of weapon was used, this would increase the likelihood of involvement of a second person. However, the autopsy report does not support that theory. Additionally, if there were two people involved in the cleanup at Casey's house, I believe they would have done a much more thorough job. The rushed and incomplete cleanup is indicative of just one person panicking in the aftermath of the murder. It's possible that a second person assisted in disposing of the body, but I don't think it's likely. If the killer didn't have enough time to move the body, they could have called someone they trusted to do it for them. However, this would have been a very risky move, requiring them to admit to murder and trust that the other person would agree to help move a body and then keep this secret for 16 years. Well, you know, I mean, you'd help me move a body, right? Yeah, no question. And But, unfortunately, as we've discussed before, the old saying goes, three people can keep a secret. If two of them are dead. If two of them are dead. So... That's a good point. Involving someone else would also make that person an accomplice and put them at greater risk for potentially being arrested and criminally charged. Well, no doubt. That's a fucking no-brainer. And this is Miss Buholtz again stating, I doubt the risk associated with being an accomplice is one many people would be willing to take. Okay. Well, I changed my mind then. (laughs) (laughs) There was no, there was just one person involved. Now, if... The, this is another question. I apologize. Question. If the piano was n- leg was not the weapon, why was it not at Casey's house after the murder? That was the weapon. I don't care. You're not going to convince me otherwise. Yeah, me either. Her yeah, answer to... That was the weapon. Yeah. Answer. The piano leg may very well be incidental to the murder and have nothing to do with it. Though it appears to be missing, we still do not have confirmation that the Arkansas State Police have it in their custody. It's possible the piano leg was used for some other purpose, such as propping open a broken screen door. The killer may have also decided to dispose of the piano leg if somehow it got Rebecca's blood on it, perhaps during the cleanup of the crime scene. There are many reasons why the piano leg may be missing. Yeah, 
Many reasons as in it was used to kill her. Yeah, exactly. Question. Rebecca suffered two separate injuries to the head. If the killer wanted her dead, why did they stop at two blows? This is a very good question. Well, because I mean, because that's all it took. Jennifer states that this question has plagued her as well. Okay, I mean... The most reasonable answer that she can come up with is that the weapon broke. However, Hmm. there are other possibilities. For example, it's possible the two blows were indicative of a repetitive movement the killer often engaged in, such as driving in roofing nails. One blow to set the nail, the second second blow to drive the nail in. Or... The killer could have simply regained control of themselves after delivering the two quick blows. While this last pos- this last scenario is possible, it seems unlikely to Miss Buchholz, especially because they chose to let Rebecca die instead of seeking medical attention. Some people have hypothesized that the amount of blood gushing from Rebecca's nose startled the killer, causing them to stop hitting her. I, I, I honestly think it, they only hit her twice because that's all it took. That's my opinion. Jennifer finds that last scenario unlikely because if Jennifer is correct that the two blows were delivered in quick succession within seconds of each other, blood would have only just started to flow. It would not yet have made a large enough mess where the killer would be concerned about the cleanup. Oh, that's, that's, that's fair. Question. Did Rebecca's stomach have any food in it? Answer. The only noted content in her stomach was a small amount of brownish fluid, which would lead to the coffee that she picked, she purchased, in my opinion. This may have been by a byproduct of decomposition process, or she may have drank some coffee and before that, she died. That leads me to the question about the breakfast sandwich. Was that... She didn't eat it? No. Was that for someone? Was Did she purposely buy that? For someone else to consume, and that happened to be the killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Question. On the Helen Gone podcast, it seems like a lot of witnesses can't remember. It seems like a lot of witnesses can't remember much about the weekend before Rebecca's death, death or the day of her murder. Is that normal after 16 years? Answer. <laughs> I love this answer. In quotation marks, normal is a subjective term, and it is and is different for every person. However, statistically speaking, most people remember the details surrounding a traumatic event, such as a car accident, a natural disaster, or death of a loved one. Though memories fade over time, Ms. Buchholz has found that most people can still remember intimate details relevant to a tra- tragedy. Ms. Buchholz states that she has a great deal of training and experience interviewing and interrogating individuals, which includes analyzing their body language and word usage. Throughout her career, she has found most people who, quote, can't remember are trying to distance themselves from an event. Sometimes they know they told a lie in the past, but can't remember the details of that lie. As a result, they say, quote, I can't remember to avoid tripping themselves up and exposing their lie. It is important to note that it is significantly easier to remember the details of the truth even after 16 years than it is to remember a made-up or falsified story. I don't know, man. That's that's just... I don't know. Perhaps they didn't really know that it, it was going to be a traumatic event. You know what I'm saying? Like, who really recalls things just offhand? 
It's been 16 years. You're going to forget something. Question. Do you think the killer has confessed to a friend or family member about the murder? Answer. Yes, probably. (laughs) Committing a murder is an overwhelming secret to keep to oneself for a long period of time. It is emotionally and mentally draining. Jennifer expects the killer has been consumed by their deed and the strain of acting normal whenever the topic is brought up has probably become increasingly difficult over time. They likely told someone at least part of the story at some point. I agree with that. Doing so would have brought some temporary emotional relief knowing they were not the only one carrying the burden. Mm. I agree with that too. Question. What are the requirements for a homicide case to be designated as a, quote, cold case versus an, quote, open case? Answer. Unfortunately, Arkansas has no, quote, cold case or, quote, sunset clause covering the official status of unsolved homicide or the release of investigative files associated with those unsolved criminal cases. Therefore, an unsolved homicide can remain, quote, open indefinitely. In most jurisdictions... An unsolved case is eventually designated as, quote, cold, which allows at least parts of the investigative file to be released. In Phoenix, Arizona, for example, unsolved murders are automatically transferred to the cold case unit after one year. Similarly, in Houston, Texas, a case is designated as, quote, cold after three years. Question, what information do you expect is in the actual investigative file? Answer. Miss Buchholz expects the following is in the file. One, statements from all suspects, persons of interest, the responding officer, and witnesses. Two, recordings and transcripts of interviews and interrogations of said persons of interest. Three, photos and sketches of the primary and secondary crime scene. Four, photos and forensic results from the analysis of each piece of evidence. Five, photos and x-rays from the autopsy. Six, information confirming the alibis of those who have been cleared. Seven, photos of the hands of all persons of interest as well as any other noted injuries on their bodies. Eight, phone records of persons of interest and the Sonic restaurant in Melbourne. And finally, video footage from the Possum Truck convenience store where Rebecca was last seen alive. Yeah, I would definitely want to see that footage. I want to see the witness statements. Yeah, I want to see a lot of things, but... We ain't pretty. (laughs) No, we are not. Question. Why do you think the Arkansas State Police is refusing to release the investigative file? Answer. This would require wide speculation on Ms. Bukos' part, which she is unwilling to do. The Arkansas State Police is within their rights to maintain privacy over the entire investigative file. However, the rationale for doing so is quite weak after 16 years. They continue to designate Rebecca's murder as a, quote, active case, but it does not logically meet that standard. Unless the killer comes forward with a confession or someone presents information leading to the whereabouts of the murder weapon, there is no more evidence to collect or analyze. Any forensic evidence collected within the first few days after the discovery of the primary crime scene and then the following week when Rebecca's body was found. Conducting witness interviews are essentially fruitless at this time. She, Miss Bucholtz, does not know why the Arizona, Arizona, Arkansas State Police 
does not want the public's help in bringing justice for Rebecca, especially since that is probably the best chance they have to uncover any pertinent or relative relevant information. Question, why haven't you reached out to any of the persons of interest associated with this case? Answer, after, at this time, 16 years, memories fade and change, and people can convince themselves of, quote, facts that never happened. As stated above, I, Miss Bucholtz, have had a lot of experience interviewing, interrogating, and reading and slash interpreting body language. Analyzing nonverbal behavior is extremely valuable in the days after a crime, but after more than a decade, people have had plenty of time to mentally perfect their story and their associated nonverbal behavior. She also heard many people's accounts of events when they spoke on Miss Townsend's podcast, Helen Gone. There was no need for her to replicate Miss Townsend's hard work and efforts. Agreed. Again, Miss Townsend, I did not slight you, even though Coach is trying to start a <laughs> rift between the two of us. You did. I'm sorry. She knows. Uh, yeah. She knows that I'm truly the one on her side. <laughs> this is not a funny case, but we've got to find something to laugh yeah, at because this, this is, is horrible. miserable, man. Like, God, like, I'm so sad that this happened. Question. Why aren't you, Miss Bucholtz, and Miss Catherine Townsend working together on this case? Miss Bucholtz's answer Catherine and I did have a brief exchange over Facebook Messenger. However, we have very different backgrounds, experiences, and strengths, and she spearheaded this effort long before I chose to write a series of articles. Though we are not associated or working together, we are complementing each other's efforts. Catherine has done a great job seeking out and convincing many people with close association to the case to speak with her. I usually look at cases by interpreting interpreting and analyzing the known facts and evidence. However, these two investigative strategies go hand in hand and are both crucial to solving a case. Question, what course of action should or could be taken to solve this case? Answer, Ms. Bucholtz believes that there is enough evidence to consider Rebecca's murder solved. At this point, it's a matter of obtaining a conviction in a court of law. In her opinion, this crime was solvable in the week following the recovery of her bird, her body. Her birdie? Yeah, her birdie, because <laughs> I was looking ahead. <laughs> the legal burden now lies on the Arkansas State Police to present the facts and evidence of the case to the appropriate prosecutor. Assuming the prosecutor is in agreement with the state police findings, he or she can bring charges against the killer and take the case to trial. Question, have you spoken to Dennis Simons, who was, at the time of her articles, the lead investigator, or any other official authority associated with this case? Answer, as of the writing of my articles, no, I have not spoken directly with the authorities. However, I had mailed Lieutenant Governor Tim Griffin, Major Mark Hollingsworth, Lieutenant Kim Warren, Mr. Dennis Simons, and Eric Hance, the prosecuting attorney for Izzard County, a condensed copy of her upcoming article, which lays out the circumstantial case. 
Her purpose for doing so is to provide them with the professional courtesy of viewing her conclusions prior to publication and to give them the opportunity to comment on or act upon these conclusions. I also filed a Freedom of Information request for the release of the Izzard County 911 dispatch records from September 20th, 21st, and 27th, 2004. That request was denied by Prosecutor Eric Hance. However, his justification for the denial was invalid as 911 calls are public record in the state of Arkansas. I have called Hance's office multiple times and sent two emails asking him to provide the Arkansas state statute that covers his denial to my request. There has been none. He has failed to respond. The only 911 call I expect to have relevant to this case is the call Rebecca's mother made on Tuesday, September 21, 2004, requesting that the sheriff's office conduct a welfare check of her daughter. I cannot speculate why there would be any issue releasing the transcript of that call to the public. Question, what can the public do to help close this case? Answer, the best course of action is to get in contact either by phone or by writing a letter with those who have the authority to take official action. Those people include Eric Hance, the prosecutor who has the authority to bring charges, Major Mark Hollingsworth, the head of the Arkansas State Police, and or Tim Griffin, the lieutenant governor of Arkansas. Ms. Buchholz would like to note that Mr. Griffin has been privy to the efforts of Rebecca's family to get this case solved and has provided them with positive feedback and responses in recent months. She has encouraged people to voice their dissatisfaction about the handling of the case and apply pressure to the authorities on requesting that one, criminal charges be brought, or two, the investigative file contents be released to the public. Now we're going to get into Ms. Buchholz's circumstantial scenario. And this is her opinion, and she states that over and over again in her articles. We just thought this would be a very good way of tying a lot of this information that we've covered so far up. According to Ms. Buchholz, Rebecca knew her killer. We cannot say for sure why she was only wearing a t-shirt and underwear when her killer arrived at Casey's house to confront her. She may have been napping, changing clothes, or preparing to get in the shower. The assumption that the that she did not scramble to put on pants when her killer arrived is an important indication that her killer was probably someone she knew well and trusted. Many have speculated that Rebecca and her killer engaged in a verbal argument the morning she was murdered, before she stopped at the possum trot. This may be true, but according to Miss Buchholz, she doesn't think it was the primary motive for the perpetrator to come to Casey's house to kill her. Instead, she believes, and we also believe, that... The killer either received a phone call or somehow obtained information from another person, maybe at work, that indicated Rebecca had done something they did not approve of, such as spend time with another man. Maybe she had become intimate with someone new, or maybe she had simply been seen with another man and that information was relayed to her killer. Whatever the motive was, it was something that flipped a switch in the killer's mind and sent them into a rage. They may have even showed up at Casey's house expecting to find another man there. Upon arriving at Casey's house, the killer probably confronted Rebecca with the recently discovered information and a verbal argument ensued. 
The argument likely escalated, leading the killer to snatch a weapon of opportunity, which we are saying is the... (laughs) That would be the piano leg. Yes. 1,000%. And hit Rebecca twice with it. Whoever killed Rebecca spent some time at the murder scene cleaning, most likely right after they took her body outside and placed it in a vehicle. This would have been the least risky time to conduct a cleanup because no one yet knew Rebecca was missing. Therefore, no one would come to Casey's house to look for her. If the killer had waited until a later time to return to the scene and clean it up, it would have greatly increased the risk of being caught. This is because they they wouldn't have known when Rebecca would officially be reported missing to authorities or when the house might be searched by law enforcement. The killer probably used towels from the house to clean up the majority of the visible blood. In the process of cleaning, they removed the bloody sheets from the bed, flipped the mattress over so the blood stain would not be visible during a rudimentary search, and hid the bloody pillows under the bed. Before leaving the house that morning, they probably put the bloody towels in the washer and started the cycle. It is theorized that this initial cleanup was rushed because the killer had a schedule or obligation to meet in order to have an alibi. They may have even left work to confront Rebecca and knew they could not stay away from their place of employment for too long before someone would start questioning their whereabouts. Hmm. They did only what was necessary so that if someone happened to stop by, nothing hopefully looked out of place. The killer probably had planned to return to the house that night to clean it completely, dispose of all related evidence, wash the sheets, return them to the bed, and remove Rebecca's belongings and vehicle from the property. They likely planned to do this in hopes that law enforcement would suspect that Rebecca left on her own or had been kidnapped. The killer probably transported Rebecca's body from the crime scene to the disposal site very soon after they determined she was dead. Logically, they would have removed her body from the house prior to starting the cleanup. Moving her body after cleaning would have resulted in additional cleanup work. Following this half-assed cleanup, the killer likely drove Rebecca's body the 15 or so minutes to the disposal site. They would not have risked leaving her body in the vehicle any longer than necessary. After disposing of her body, they probably returned to work or whatever obligation they had. Who had the overwhelming motive to clean the crime scene and move Rebecca's body? The killer missed their opportunity to return to the house in the middle of Monday night and finish cleaning because they either A, fell asleep, or... They left. Really? You're going to fall asleep and forget to go clean up your murder scene? Well. I don't know, man. When they awoke the next morning, they probably panicked at the realization that they had failed to follow through on the task that would, in in their mind, remove any trace of Rebecca's murder from Casey's house. Despite the missed opportunity, indications are that they still took a huge risk and returned to the scene. This was probable because the towels were were reported to have been found in the dryer and the bloody sheets in the washer. Unless the killer spent a longer period of time during the initial cleanup on Monday to wait for the towels to wash, it's possible they came back to the house on Tuesday morning to put the towels in the dryer and start a new wash cycle for the sheets. For whatever reason, they were unable to finish cleaning or wait for the sheets to complete the wash cycle. Maybe they, yet again were expected to be at work. When the killer returned to the house on Tuesday morning, they forgot about the bloody pillows they had stuffed under the bed because they were not in plain sight. Even if they had completed a full cleanup, 
law enforcement's discovery of the pillows would have confirmed that Rebecca had been assaulted in Casey's house. Casey McCullough stated that the responding officer who conducted the welfare check on Tuesday morning opened the washing machine. Now, why would an officer conducting a welfare check searching for a human being look in a washer? A grown adult, even at Rebecca's small size, would not fit in a washing machine. Could it have been the officer opened the washing machine because he or she heard the noise of it running? Maybe. I don't know. That's a good question, though. This means the killer had been at Casey's house within the previous hour or so prior to the welfare check to start the load of laundry. The killer did this because all reports indicate that the sheets from Casey's bed with Rebecca's blood on them were found in the washing machine. No one except the killer would have had the motive to return to Casey's house and start another load of bloody laundry. Who would have felt comfortable taking the incalculable risk of returning to the scene of the crime nearly 24 hours after it occurred to do laundry. Whoever killed Rebecca and cleaned the scene had to touch many surfaces and items in various rooms of the house, and at some point probably had to wash their hands in one of the sinks or maybe even the shower. There is very good chance the killer would have left traces of their own DNA or fingerprints at the scene. This is especially true because it's doubtful they brought any gloves because there's no indication that this murder was premeditated or planned out. Hmm. The Arkansas State Police refused to disclose any of the investigative documents. Without these documents, one of two scenarios must be true. Scenario A. There was no foreign DNA or fingerprints found at the crime scene. Quote, foreign DNA and fingerprints refer to that of a person who is not normally associated with a particular location. In this case, that location is Casey's house. Certainly, Casey and Rebecca's DNA and fingerprints were strewn throughout the house since they both lived there. The DNA and fingerprints of Casey's father, who had a bedroom at the house, would not have been out of place either. Scenario B. There is fingerprints and or DNA that have not hit on any databases in 16 years. If the DNA and or fingerprints of someone who had no reason to be at the house had been found and the authorities ran it through databases each year, that person should have been arrested by now or is dead or, at the very least, never committed another crime. Some of the persons of interest in this case are convicted felons though none were at the time of the murder. That means their DNA profiles are now in the combined DNA, DNA index hmm. database, which is CODIS. Yeah. The lack of an arrest indicates that there were no foreign DNA or fingerprints collected from the house or the Arkansas State Police is not releasing that information. There seems to be some very convincing evidence which points away from most of the suspects. In determining whom the most likely person to carry out the murder is, additional circumstantial items need to be considered. The killer would need to meet all of the following. An alibi that is impossible to prove, admitted that he was at Casey's house on Tuesday morning, or she, 
DNA and fingerprints that would not look out of place at Casey's house, a history of a personal or intimate relationship with Rebecca, thus her answering the door in her panties, <laughs> a history of violent outbursts, access to a vehicle, knowledge of the local area, a first-hand changing timeline of events, an inability or refusal to remember key pieces of the timeline re- prior to Rebecca's murder, access to Casey's house, backyard, on two different days without looking out of place, a lack of interest in searching for Rebecca's body or attending her funeral, knowledge of the piano leg being loose if it was used as the murder weapon, familiarity with both Rebecca and Casey's dogs, a refusal to discuss their their theory on what happened to Rebecca, trust from Rebecca for her to remain in her underwear in their presence, and finally lived in the area depicted on the map in Miss Buchold's articles. The question now is, what person fits all of the circumstantial criteria on this list? Is circumstantial evidence enough to prove this case? Well, I can think of one. Yeah, I can too. And that would be Casey. But he was at work. Supposedly. Surely. Miss Bucco summarizes the circumstantial evidence theory as follows. There are many prosecutors and law enforcement personnel who believe there must be solid forensic evidence to convict someone of murder. However, in the popular show Cold Justice, Kelly Siegler provided a fantastic analogy of the power of circumstantial evidence. If you hold one pencil in your hand, it's easy to snap it in half. But if you have a fistful of pencils, you cannot break them. The same holds true for circumstantial evidence in court. One piece of circumstantial evidence is easy to contest and disprove. However, many pieces of circumstantial evidence that all point to the same person are very difficult to refute. When analyzing Rebecca's case, we have a lot of pencils. And we will post a link to Miss Bucholtz's articles so that you can read through them on your own. All right. And yes, we're finally getting to suspects. <laughs> I know that took a lot, and I hope y'all are still with us. That's a long episode, but I mean, I think we, I think it deserves to be a long episode. Yes, I agree. Now, this is just crazy. We're going to start off with JB, and he is also known as Jesse. He was friends with Rebecca and a former classmate. He was also friends with Chris. Chris is basically his best friend. Who's Chris? We'll get into that. Okay. Back in 2004, Chris was a known drug dealer. Mm. He had helped Rebecca score some pot on different occasions. Once she showed up with Casey, JB explains that he never kept his dope at his place of residence. He told her that both she and Casey would have to ride with him to go pick it up. JB recalls that Casey never said a word during this ride. Rebecca didn't pay JB for the dope for another week, but she did pay a whopping $20. (laughs) This is what the police would say was the reason that JB killed Rebecca. 20 bucks? Yep. 20 bucks? Yep. No. $20 is hardly a reason to kill someone, and from what we've learned in his interview with Miss Townsend in episode two of her podcast... 
makes it sound like this was something common for Rebecca to do to get some dope and pay for it a week later. JB also had a solid alibi and was in Cabot, Arkansas, which is in northwest corner of the state, the weekend of her death. Police would go on to change their hypothesis and state that his friend Chris actually committed the murder and got JB to help him cover it up. Again, we know that if two people are involved, it's awful hard to keep a secret (laughs) for 16 years. Absolutely. Again, this theory from the police doesn't hold water. While JB was in Cabot, Chris told authorities that JB had actually killed Rebecca because he was supposed to go fix her alternator and left town for a couple of days following her death. Hmm. This caused a huge problem, to say the least, between JB and Chris, and they've never spoke since. That would fuck up a friendship. Yeah, for sure. Murder tends to fuck friendships up, man. Well, that and you accusing me of murder is going to piss me off. (laughs) No doubt. JB does not think Chris was capable, even though Chris's car wound up getting crushed soon after the murder. That is a very odd situation. And I suggest if you're interested in that, check out episode two, because she goes into a much greater detail than we have time to. Yeah, for sure. Now, JB does not think that Chris was capable, even though his car was disposed of after the murder. One of, one of the rumors is that Chris stored Rebecca's body in the trunk, and that is why it was crushed in a junkyard. If this was even remotely true, police would have had substantial evidence to put Chris away quickly. Yeah, yeah for sure. JB said that a couple of weeks later, a mysterious oil can with blood on it was found in his blazer, and the cops took it to have it tested. He states that the only way there would have been blood on anything in his vehicle would have come from a deer that he struck and transported to his father-in-law's. Authorities have never contacted JB again. And soon after this, he decides, fuck it, I'm moving to Texas. Now, let's get to Chris. The police have really honed in on Chris. And to say that Mr. Simons really likes Chris for this murder is a huge understatement. Chris, like JB, was friends and classmates with Rebecca. Chris feels like Rebecca and her sisters were like his sisters, and he reiterates that while he was staying with JB the weekend Rebecca went missing and that she stopped by JB's and JB had mentioned that he was supposed to fix her alternator, Chris would go on to tell police just what we stated, and according to him, this is when police started focusing in on him and JB. Chris states that Rebecca was always good to him and he would never harm her. He feels that by telling police what he did, he placed himself as a main suspect. Chris still has a reputation as a very violent and dangerous person around Melbourne. Many people are scared of him, and I suggest you listen to his interview in episode three of Miss Townsend's podcast to make your own conclusions. But Chris tells Miss Townsend in the interview that he had stayed at his parents' house all night and only learned that Rebecca was missing when his mother woke him up. Chris feels like JB knows more than he is letting on. 
He states that he has never been to Casey's home and told police that they could administer a polygraph. To our knowledge, this was never done. Catherine Townsend states that during her interview with Chris that he had tears in his eyes when he recounts the last time he saw Rebecca. She feels in his heart, in her heart, he is innocent. And after listening to the interview, so do I. Now, let's get into a lady named Jennifer. At the time of the murder, Jennifer was pregnant with Rebecca's former boyfriend, Justin's baby. Jennifer knew everyone that had ties to Rebecca that we have discussed so far, JB and Chris. It was well known that Jennifer had gotten into several arguments with Rebecca over Justin and that Rebecca was known to be a scrapper and would not back down from a good fight. Rebecca's mom is on record stating that she believes that Jennifer had something to do with Rebecca's murder, but police state that she was shopping that day in Conway, Arkansas, and has credit card receipts to back this up. Jennifer was once Casey's manager at the Sonic they both worked at, so she would have known where Casey lived. Now, Rebecca's ex-boyfriend Justin states that he and Rebecca were still dating up until the week before her murder. Could this be motive for Jennifer to commit the murder? Hmm. That's very interesting. That's a good question. Now we get to the man of the hour, Mr. Casey McCullough. He was Rebecca's boyfriend, or what we refer to, have referred to him as Rebecca's friends with benefits. He owned the trailer that Rebecca was murdered in. On the day of her murder, Casey was dropped off by Rebecca and worked his entire shift. He then left Sonic in Melbourne and went to a friend's house named Laren. All of the friends that went to the movies and returned to Laren's house where they played Halo and smoked dope all night. Casey tells Alicia, the girlfriend of the current owner of Sonic, Joey, that he had gone back to his house sometime before he went there with the police on Tuesday to change shirts. The day after the murder, and couldn't tell that anything was wrong in his trailer. Hmm. What the fuck? Yeah, that's very strange. How could you go into your own home and not wonder why your girlfriend's car was still there along with her clothes, her purse, her cell phone, her dog? Again, what the fuck? Yeah, that's highly suspect. Let's just put it that way. Now, a reporter named Mr. George Jarrett interviewed Casey after Rebecca was found, and Mr. Jarrett states that Casey seemed distant. (laughs) Now, on the surface, that's expected hell you you just found out your girlfriend's missing that's not anything to raise a red flag over because people take grief and loss differently and we've discussed this many times yeah for sure what is a red flag is that while almost everyone in rebecca's life was out searching for her when she was discovered missing casey did not search for her that is very strange and just to be clear Everyone else that we have discussed was out actively looking for Rebecca. JB, Chris, Justin, Jennifer, all of them. Casey's friend Patrick states that Casey actually moved in with him after the murder. Patrick states that Casey was distraught and that he had told him that he 
had messed up his polygraph because he had smoked marijuana a couple of days before the test. This is unequivocally false. Yeah. Marijuana has not gonna fuck no a, effect yeah. on a no. polygraph test. No effect whatsoever. It ain't going to help you pass it. Sure as hell ain't going to help you fail it. That's true. Patrick states that Casey was afraid of being by himself because he felt like whoever killed Rebecca could come back for him. Patrick would have had to go into Casey's trailer and make sure it was, quote, clear before Casey would enter it. Just so that you are aware, Casey lives to this day, as far as we know, in the same trailer in which Rebecca was murdered. That's And as of 2017, he so lives there with his wife and his so, child. That's so strange. How could you do that? I don't know, dude. How? Mm, that's another what the fuck. Yeah. I'd have burnt that fucker to the ground. Absolutely. Or I got you a bulldozer for your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so strange. Patrick states that he never thought Casey was responsible, but in his opinion, that it is odd that someone would have to have known the trailer's layout because they cleaned up and started the washing machine. Rebecca's sister states that her mom received a phone call from Casey on Tuesday stating that he was alarmed because all of Rebecca's things were at the trailer, but Rebecca was not. Now, hmm. here's where I have become like a statement analysis junkie. Mm -hmm. So does this mean that Casey made this phone call from the trailer while the police were present? If so, why did authorities allow him to use the phone? If he made the phone call before the authorities were there, then his alibi is shit. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's a good. That's a that's a great point. Patrick tells Catherine Townsend in episode six that Casey was staying with his sister, and when he went over there, that Casey cried in his arms about the murder. "Quote: It really got to him that the fact that the trailer is so remote and no one knows where it's at. So I just straight out asked him, friend to friend, did you do it? Then immediately says, well, he couldn't have because he was working all day. <laughs> all right, that's another what the fuck, because if it were you and I, Coach. I, no, I couldn't have done it. I was at work. I would have been like, hell no, he didn't do it. He was at work. Yeah. That's my best friend. If my girlfriend got murdered in the house... I would leave no stone unturned, no. and I would be so pissed off. Just like Catherine states in her podcast, I would have a murder board the size of a fucking room. Yep. There would be so much red string on there, and I would look like the guy on that meme where he's pointing to the board. <laughs> you mean uh, Charlie Day from Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's getting pretty obvious that something's not right about him. Yep. Oh, it gets better, bub. An ex-boyfriend of Rebecca's talked to Miss Townsend in episode seven. They never discussed his name, and I, it doesn't matter at this point because he has no dog in the fight, to be honest with you. He stated to her that his first date with Rebecca was a double date with her sister, Danielle, and Danielle's boyfriend. They had gone to a couple of liquor stores but arrived too late, so they decided to go back to Danielle's boyfriend's house and hang out there. Basically, the liquor stores were all closed. 
He states that Casey shows up and drama ensues. The man tells Rebecca to handle Casey or he will. Hmm. She explains that Casey and her are just friends, but he is head over and heels in love with her and can't let go. He goes on to explain that Rebecca goes outside to talk to Casey and he becomes distraught, Casey, and cries and then comes in, cries again, and just would not leave. He said it got so odd that they were all about to go to bed and Casey's just sitting there and they're like, dude, what the hell are you doing? He further explains Casey would just show up where they were and or would blow up Rebecca's phone wanting to know where she was and what she was doing. This man tells Catherine Townsend that Casey was extremely controlling and demanding and that he finally, the man, told Rebecca that their relationship could not go any further until she dealt with Casey. Oh, wow. Casey would go on to run his mouth about this man to this man's friends, that, stating that he was going to stomp his ass. When confronted, Casey would state that he didn't have a problem with this guy and turned around and went back into Sonic. So this gentleman would go on to state that it is hard for him to believe that Casey would not be losing his ever-loving mind if he could not get in contact with Rebecca for more than an hour. Now, Laren, Casey's friend whose house he stayed at, at the Monday on the Monday of the murder, states that he worked with Casey at Sonic. Now, investigators had asked Laren about what Casey was doing on the Monday in question. He tells investigators that he doesn't feel that Casey could have left while everyone was asleep because everyone at his house had loud vehicles and it would have woken everyone up. However, he is never brought back in after Rebecca's body was found by authorities. Really? He was only questioned during her disappearance. And he gave a statement to authorities during the search Laren tells that Casey was without a vehicle while he was with them and that his vehicle had been left in Batesville and that they took him to Batesville to pick it up. He goes on to state that Casey told the friends that Rebecca was supposed to pick him up after work. If you're planning to go to the movies with mm-hmm. your friends and spend the night at their house, then why would your girlfriend have to come pick you up if your friends were taking you to Batesville to pick your truck up? That's a good question. Laren believes that Casey was worried about Rebecca, but is not sure on the details. And if you listen to this interview, Laren comes across now as a guy that just smoked way too much pot. (laughs) And he admits it during the episode. We all know that guy. We all know the guy that's had way too much pot. Yeah. I used to be that guy. (laughs) I'm not anymore, though. Laren goes on to state in his official statement that after the group returned from Batesville, Casey used his phone, Laren's phone, and after the call was over, Casey tells Laren that Rebecca is missing. So if you're playing along at home, friends, Laren just said that Casey used his cell phone got off the cell phone and tells Laren on Monday that Rebecca is missing. Why in the hell, if we are to believe that he is this controlling, 
just shows up when she's on a date with another man, why would he not haul ass to go look for her? That's a good question. Maybe because he knows what happened to her. Maybe so. Laren states that while working at Sonic, it was not uncommon for workers to be able to leave and run errands without clocking out. But once Casey was with him on Monday, he never left his sight. Laren also states that Casey never spoke about the murder afterwards, and they have just drifted apart. Casey's boss at Sonic confirms that Casey worked the early shift, and Rebecca did, in fact, drop him off. However, the early shift would have put Casey getting off work around 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Laren is on record stating they didn't leave for Batesville till 3 or 4. That would put two hours between the time Casey got off and when he left for Batesville. In my eyes, this is not an airtight alibi that the authorities keep saying that Casey has. And this is the big one. There is a rumor that Casey's truck was left at Sonic on Sunday night and he rode home with Rebecca. Hmm. If that's true, how the hell did his truck get to Batesville? Casey's explanation is that his father, who is a truck driver, drove his truck to Batesville and then went on his route. Both of those can't be true. And so I reached out to Miss Townsend this week and I asked her about that rumor and she told me that that's all that she could ever nail down, that it was just a rumor, and she's not been able to find anyone that could nail down whether or not his truck was actually at Sonic. Hmm. If his truck was at Sonic while he worked, then that changes everything. So we've kind of beat around the bush about Casey and Rebecca's relationship. Basically, Casey was head over heels in love with Rebecca. He wrote poems and songs to her. He was a, a musician and has been described as a hipster before hipsters were hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> Casey's friend Patrick said that Casey and Rebecca's relationship was good. They had their ups and downs due to the occasional breakup. According to Rebecca's friends, i.e. Justin, Chris, JB, Jennifer, J everybody else, they never knew who Casey was or... Laren states that Rebecca and Casey were very lovey-dovey around each other, but that Casey was way more into her than it seemed that she was into him. Danielle, Rebecca's sister, states that Rebecca wanted to break up with Casey and that she referred to him as, quote, the psycho care bear because of his controlling and obsessive behavior over Rebecca. Hmm. That's a terrible nickname. Yeah. Psycho care bear? Yeah. <laughs> these are some very inconsistent statements that Casey has made over the years, and we're going to go through them. Casey said he did not return home after work on September 20th until he traveled to the trailer with Charlie Melton on Tuesday. Charlie is a law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. Casey went to work Tuesday and asked to go home to get a fresh shirt. He was granted permission and returned to the trailer before Charlie Melton arrived at Sonic to take him to his trailer. Why does one need permission to go get a fresh shirt if you're going to return to work or before your start time? 
if I'm going to work and I got a dirty shirt on, he's a cook at Sonic. Yeah, I mean, who cares? Yeah, that's that's an odd, odd, odd statement. Now, this is supposedly from Casey. The next morning when I was at work, I found out she was missing. Well, we just went over. He told Philip and Laren on Monday night that Rebecca was missing. So it is believed he found out she was missing after speaking with Rebecca's sister, Danielle, that night. Is that who he called? Because Danielle is the sister that Rebecca was going to pick up to go back to college that day. Hmm. Now, Casey informed Philip and Laren that Rebecca was supposed to have picked him up at Sonic on Monday afternoon, but had not shown up. This is in both Laren and Philip's official statements, which we will post pictures of, and you can go through them. Kim McCullough, Casey's sister-in-law, publicly wrote that Casey knew Rebecca was supposed to have returned to Fayetteville, so that's why he went out with his friends. Casey also stated this in 2005. After leaving work on Tuesday, September 21st, 2004, Casey stated he left to go look for Rebecca and was pulled over by a police officer. Charlie Melton stated he went to Casey's work, Sonic, and picked him up. Casey states that he followed Charlie to his house. Can't be both. The McCullough family said that they didn't search for Rebecca due to threats being made against their family. No report of any sort of threats being made against the McCullough family has ever been filed with law enforcement. Casey stated that Charlie Melton, the officer, immediately opened Rebecca's car door, finding her purse, keys, and cell phone inside. Charlie's on record stating that he found her belongings inside the trailer. Again, can't be both. Mm -mm. Casey stated that he and Rebecca were friends. Really? They were just friends, but they lived and slept together in your trailer? Hmm... Yeah, this, the inconsistencies of his uh, statements just really screams that he's a suspect. Casey said you that he... you got to keep your story straight, bro. Yeah. Casey said he had spoken to Rebecca's family. Rebecca's family's on record numerous times stating that Casey has never contacted them. Casey said he's been told by law enforcement not to talk to anyone except law enforcement, and that's the reason for his silence. Charlie Melton, the officer, stated neither his department nor the Arkansas State P Police have instructed Casey not to talk to anyone. And Casey agreed to do an interview with Rebecca's sister, which we have and we're going to cover. <laughs> Casey makes a point to refer to Rebecca as his friend and won't commit to them having been romantically involved. In Casey's interview with her sister Tiffany, he stated and told Tiffany that the washer and dryer were only were about two feet away from the bedroom he and Rebecca would sleep in. Again, if you're just friends, why are you sleeping in the same bedroom? Slash bed. Mm. I'm pretty sure it was more than just a friendship. I've not seen these, but supposedly there are photos of Casey serenading Rebecca with a love song that he wrote for her while playing a guitar in front of her and her family. Hmm. In Tiffany's interview, Casey stated the dryer was full of towels. How the hell do you know that? 
He also states later in the interview there were two loads, one in the dryer and one in the washer. I couldn't tell you which one the sheets were in. Again, how do you know that? If you've not been back to your trailer, how do you know there's towels in the dryer and sheets in the washing machine? And if you do know that, then why the hell are there blood on them? Those are great points, my friend. In 2005, Casey told George Jared, the same George Jared that that wrote the West Memphis 3 book, that he went to a friend's house after work on Monday to play video games. Now, in most other statements, both to law enforcement and to other people, Casey stated he went to Batesville to watch a movie with friends and then to Laren's house. There has not been any mention of them playing video games that night. This is backed up by Philip and Laren's official statements prior to Rebecca's body being found. These are official statements they gave to police. You would think that if they played video games, they would dictate that in their statements. Now, in Laren's interview with Catherine Townsend, he states that on Monday nights, sometimes... No, 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 I'm sorry, it wasn't Monday nights. On other nights, they would get together, like Friday nights, and smoke a lot of dope, play Halo. But, again, these inconsistencies start adding up. Yeah, his story makes no sense. Now, there was a potential bombshell witness. An anonymous witness contacted Catherine Townsend while she was working on her podcast and stated the following. And this is in episode eight if you're wanting to hear the full thing. And I suggest you do listen to it because it's a doozy. Casey, this anonymous witness, and another friend of theirs were all sitting around drinking on two occasions. And on two other occasions, they were together stone cold sober. And all of a sudden, Casey became crying belligerently and stated he killed Rebecca and tossed the weapon off the Gyne Bridge on Highway 9. Casey stated that Rebecca had told him that this would be the last time they saw each other because they were going to be over. A heated argument ensued, and Rebecca supposedly said some offensive things to Casey, and he lost it. Casey stated to those two friends, the next thing he knows, he's cleaning up blood, and that the authorities almost had him, but they had the timeline wrong and thought he was at work. Wow. The anonymous friend states that the first time Casey told his this story to him, he thought Casey was just a guilt-stricken ex-boyfriend, drunk, blaming himself. Until Casey told the same story two separate times, stone cold sober. He stated that as soon as he heard Miss Townsend on the radio, she did a press junket on a talk show and asked for people to come forward. And this witness said that once he heard it, his conscience led, like, kind of took over, and he had to contact Catherine. Why are they not looking into him? Catherine, in her episode, convinces this man to write a sworn statement. She goes further and gets her father, who is a deputy sheriff in the neighboring county, who is also a notary, to take this man's statement officially. She, Catherine, takes this statement to authorities and eventually gets a meeting with the lead investigator, Mr. Mark Simons. Simons tells her that, quote, there is no way Casey did this, end quote. 
somehow Casey finds out about this witness who is supposed to be anonymous. Can someone from the Arkansas State Police please explain to me how an anonymous witness whose statement is given to the lead investigator is outed? It leaks out, yeah. That's Well, what we know about Arkansas, man. No shit. <laughs> it's not the uh, most up-and-up state in the union. You know what I'm saying? No. Now, there's been some corrupt things happen. Let's just put it that way. Casey finds out, like we just stated, and he threatens this witness and tells him, who the hell else have you told? Now, Miss Townsend goes on to state that after 15 years, Mr. Simons reached back out to the friends that were with Casey and wanted to talk to them. And by talking to them, I'm being extremely sarcastic. <laughs> Talk is an exaggeration. He basically mails them their original statements and asks them to, quote, look over it and see if there's anything you want to make changes to. He then goes on further to state again, quote, man, you know Casey didn't do this, end quote. Mark Simons is on record stating that if he cannot get Chris for the murder, he will serve the rest of his life in jail on other charges. To say that Mr. Simons really likes Chris for this murder is a huge understatement. Now, Chris is not a choir boy by any means. And he's not done himself any favors. And he was actually arrested for an incident with Rebecca's longtime ex-boyfriend, Justin. And that is, we could do a podcast episode on that whole scenario. But we're not going. No, thank <laughs> God. A new prosecutor and a new lead detective have been assigned to this case. But as of our podcast dropping, there has been no new traction. Now, again... I reached out to Miss Townsend. She was very gracious, gave me her cell phone number. We talked for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour about the case. She wanted us to come up with questions and contact the new lead detective and see if we could get anything. But we're not going to do that because we're just two idiots in a basement. Yep. And if uh, Miss Townsend, who is a licensed private investigator, can't get them to talk to her, and Miss Bucholtz can't get them to talk to her, I'm pretty sure they're not going to talk to dumbasses from Georgia. No. The likelihood is zero. Zero percent. Now, before we get into the interview that Tiffany's sister, Tiffany's sister, Rebecca's sister Tiffany did with Casey, I do want to state that Miss Bucholtz had pulled some strings with a, I think they call it the VSOC committee that goes over cold cases. And this committee is comprised of ex-FBI agents, uh, current medical doctors, coroners, medical examiners, basically people that know their field. And there is a huge waiting list to get your case in front of VSOC. 
Miss Buchholz pulled strings to get this case in front of this VSOC committee. The Arkansas State Police is on record stating they're not going to discuss this case with civilians. Civilians? <laughs> civilians. The FBI agent in question is the guy that broke the Unabomber case. He's the one that deciphered the writings and tied it and got the brother to... He's not a fucking civilian. I don't know what to say about the ineptitude, the thought that God himself handed the Arkansas State Police their badges. It's amazing. It's baffling that... Check your ego at the door. <laughs> it's a baffling that these people are uh, capable of conducting police work. Traffic stops. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I wouldn't even want them to be uh, a crossing guard. If you have one of our stickers on your vehicle <laughs> in the state of Arkansas, you may be a target. Yeah, for real. So we're going to wrap this episode up by going over the interview. Are and we then sure? we'll give our... This is like a 14-and-a-half-hour episode, It bro. is, bro. It's a long one. But, again, I think it deserves it. I this, do, too. This case deserves. This is a case, and I've listened to many podcasts. This is a case I'm afraid that I will be sitting in a red light one day and go, I wonder <laughs> if anything else has happened, and I'll start Googling it. Yeah. This is the interview that Casey had with Rebecca's sister, Tiffany. And this was provided to us by Mrs. Jennifer Buchholz. Tiffany states, I talked with Gabby this morning and went over some questions to ask you. Casey, that's okay. We both know what we want to do here. I understand. She's your sister. You loved her. You want justice. You want that. And I'm willing to help. Since we both know this was not a social call, Tiffany goes straight into asking the important questions. Casey's on record stating, I do want you to know one thing. Every time the police have come up here, I have stopped whatever I was doing and I have cooperated. What do you need? Let's do whatever you want to do. I want to cooperate. There has been one time I have told police to get off my steps. Now, as far as Catherine Townsend and the media, get out of here. Yeah, Catherine's on record stating that he would not at all talk to her and even sent a message to her stating, leave me alone. So this is Tiffany. I've done the same thing. Well, not with the media, but like I told you before, the media has never come to us for anything. I mean, if they would have, we probably would have talked to them. But they went to my dad, who didn't really know Rebecca. He didn't know anything about her, unfortunately, and I think it was the last name. One of the first things we discussed was the day after Rebecca went missing. She was expected to meet Danielle on Monday, and when that still did not happen, Tuesday, September 21st, our family asked that an official wellness check be performed by police. An officer escorted Casey to his residence, and when they arrived, Casey confirmed Rebecca's car was still at his house. He shared this was not a surprise. He had already gone home that morning. Ding, 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 ding. When they pulled into the driveway, the police officer immediately opened Rebecca's car door, finding her purse, keys, and cell phone inside. Next, they entered the house where they saw Lady, Rebecca's dog. Casey told me the officer walked in the living room, looked around, walked down the hall, opened the washing machine. It wasn't until he looked inside the washing machine that he proceeded to the bedroom. Tiffany. 
The police officer you talked to at first, was he a friend of yours? Casey. No, I had seen him around, but he was not a friend. I mean, I'd seen him around. It's a small town. I didn't even hang out with him or nothing. Tiffany. When you and the officer went to go check on Rebecca on Tuesday and went to go to your house, did you all go in two different vehicles? Casey. Yes, he followed me in my truck. Casey confirmed he went to work on the morning of Tuesday after staying the night at his friend's. He did, in fact, ask to go home and change his dirty shirt, recalling he saw Rebecca's car when he pulled up. He said, oh, Rebecca is still here, and he walked in and yelled her name. He didn't get a response, so he walked down the hall, looked in the bedroom, didn't see her, grabbed his Sonic shirt off the laundry basket, and left to go back to work. He was not at work long when he found out Rebecca was missing, and he asked to leave to go look for her. After leaving work, he was pulled over by a police officer, who told him Rebecca was missing and asked Casey to escort him to his residence to check on her. Tiffany, I tried to get her to stay in Fayetteville that weekend. Who was the officer that pulled you over? Casey. I don't remember his name. If I saw a picture of him, I could probably tell you that's the guy. But as far as reading his name tag or anything or asking what his name was, I don't think we really ever did that. The events on the day before Rebecca's disappearance, Sunday, September 19th, have also been called into question. In our previous conversation, Casey couldn't recall if Rebecca was at his house the entire weekend, but we have information she was, in fact, there all weekend. Casey remembers she came to pick him up from work on Sunday, and in order to pin down the timeline before her disappearance, I asked him to try and recall that Friday and Saturday. He cannot remember who specifically would have seen Rebecca those nights. I explained that it was okay as long as the police investigators knew that was what mattered. He admits that there were a lot he has forgotten over the years, which is why police questioned him extensively after Rebecca's disappearance and subsequent murder. We kept hearing the name Patrick and were curious who he was and how he tied into the timeline. Tiffany. Okay, so when I was looking back at everything, you mentioned something about going to a friend's house on Sunday. I jotted it down, but what friend was that? Casey. I can't really tell you. I don't really remember. All I know is that I'd like to say it was one of my friends from Melbourne, not any Mountain View people or people who moved from Mountain View to Melbourne. I'm pretty sure it was someone who worked at Sonic. Maybe we were just trying to swing in, get high, and get out, that kind of thing. Tiffany, when Rebecca came over on Sunday, did she tell you where she had been on Friday or Saturday? Casey, no, she told me she just came in. She was picking me up and let's go to the house. I mean, you know, I didn't really ask. She told me about her new apartment in Fayetteville. I was just glad to see her. It's hard to remember if I had made any contact with her the day before and the day after the murder. I remember Sunday and that Tuesday. I feel like she came in late. That's my gut. My gut says she came in late that weekend and finished the end of the weekend with me. That doesn't make me wonder about what was going on those two days. Tiffany, right. I wondered that too. We need to place her and figure out where she was. Casey. An article said Rebecca dropped Danielle off at Nick's place, and that was Friday, September 17th. And when I read that, I said, I cannot remember. I don't remember ever seeing her on Friday or Saturday, but that's what she said. Danielle said they came in on Friday. Tiffany. We will ask Danielle and see if she can tell us what day they came in, because I don't even know myself, but then we would be able to place her. Tiffany. Who's Patrick? Casey. Patrick Goins is a friend of mine. He's one of my best friends, and the police held me for 14 hours, and they were questioning me pretty hard, good cop, bad cop. 
He was the one that found out that the possum trot had their cameras pointing out towards the road. He just wanted to see if her car had could be seen from possum trot going back towards the house. But we found out she stopped. It was on video and everything. She was the one getting out of the car. No, she was the one getting out of the car, got out and got her sandwich, got back in the car and drove back towards the house. Casey shared the police have camera footage on him while he was in Batesville on Monday, September 20th, after he left with his friends. Tiffany, is he also the one who got your footage from Batesville too? Casey, no, the cops. They went every little thing as far as my alibi and everything about my story. The police went and checked every camera in every place and every spot I went. Everything I told them was the truth. Tiffany, and the footage that they got, did they get it from every single place? Casey, I was told they got it from everywhere I went. They said that every place you went, we have got video of everywhere. We got you at places you didn't even know you were at. Oh, yeah. And what about a lie detector test? Was there more than one? And what were the results? We had heard conflicting reports that Casey had, in fact, failed one of those tests. Tiffany, something that I also read, a lie detector test was mentioned. Casey, I've had three lie detector tests. There was two at the beginning, first interrogation, and then they came back probably five or eight years later and gave me another one. I was told I was told I passed them all, and that's what I was told. On the very first one, they did not tell me that failed, and then they came back in two hours later telling me that it was just a tactic they were using, but I actually passed. That's what I was told. Now, I didn't look at any papers. I didn't look at any percentages. I don't know whether I passed with flying colors. They didn't show me anything. Tiffany. I had heard that you'd passed, but somebody else stated you'd failed one. I said to myself, that doesn't make sense. We've had, we've heard contradicting things. Tiffany, did you live in the house afterwards? Casey, I moved out instantly. You know, I was pretty troubled, but I moved out instantly and moved in with Patrick. I probably stayed there for three, maybe four years, and then I moved into a trailer in Mount Pleasant, and I was still working at Sonic. I then started climbing cell phone towers, and I was kind of living on the road a lot. Then uh, then in a two-year span, living on the road, working, and then I decided I got tired of running and came home. I worked at a place in Melbourne now. I knew I had be- I had to better myself somehow. Tiffany. I read or heard somewhere that a couple of months after Rebecca had passed, they said they had sent a diving team. Did you hear or read about any of that? Casey, I did read something, and it's been recently since it all it's all come back to the surface. I've been doing a lot of reading myself, but yeah, I think I remember something about the White River or a bridge over some river. They had a dive team come in and check underneath it or something to no avail. I was wondering myself if they were looking for something or why that particular spot. I wonder if they have some info that we don't know. Tiffany, they said they were looking for a murder weapon, but I wasn't sure. We had heard about that, but I didn't read that until just recently it was something that was published a long time ago and i wasn't sure if you had heard about it or not or if you knew what they were talking about it was like they were talking to someone who told them that's where the murder weapon was casey that's news to me tiffany do you know an adrian or adria it would have been someone who threw parties casey no i don't think i do i knew one in texas totally unrelated but i can't say i knew anyone around here by that name. Now, this is Melbourne. In Mountain View, there's one going on every night, and Lord knows whose house we were at. You know, I was just with Rebecca. Tiffany, 
Also in the articles, it talked about missing items. What items were those? Casey, I didn't see anything missing as far as what everyone has read about. That's basically the piano leg. It was my piano, and it was right by the hallway, the entrance to the hallway. And if you walked by the piano and hit it in the right way, that leg was loose. It would just fall, and it would hit the floor. I always, I was always having to put it back. But that's the only thing I know about that was missing. Tiffany, so just the piano leg? You can't remember anything else? Casey, no, I cannot. Tiffany, the article said items, like there were a few things that were missing. And I heard about the piano leg, so the piano leg wasn't there? Casey, no. Tiffany, did everybody that would come over to your house know about this? Did every know, everyone know that piano leg was easy to knock over? Casey, I didn't have too much company over here at all, all the time, but like most people that I did hang out with would come over and play guitar, I would play piano and we would joke about my piano and how it was falling apart. It's falling apart, but it sounds good. As far as I know, the way Simon questioned me, I'm getting that they think it was the piano leg. Now they don't tell because every time I ask, they say they aren't going to tell me, but the way they ask, that's what I'm getting. Tiffany, do you think someone set you up? Casey, I think it's a good chance the way people think in Mountain View are not the way people think in Melbourne, and I was trying to get her out of Mountain View. I failed miserably, but... Casey goes on to talk about how he and Rebecca knew Chris. From what he remembers, it was a group setting in parking lots, probably doing the usual, smoking cigarettes, hanging out, maybe smoking some weed many years ago. People in Mountain View commonly did this even back when I was in high school. Needless to say, Casey did not feel they were close as a group. Out of all the rumors, Casey did clear up the complications of Justin and Rebecca. He said they were attached passionately. After seven years of a relationship, he understood more than anything how hard that bond can be to break. The whole situation has been characterized as a triangle. However, Casey states it was more of a rectangle. <laughs> okay. Being involved with Rebecca, he, would, he said he understood the connection she had with her former boyfriend, and he fully knew he was a corner piece to the puzzle. Rebecca and Casey had a true friendship, and sometimes it was more than simply just friendship. She came into town and needed to stay. Casey said he was there for her. Casey explained that on occasion he was known to even lend his couch or his porch to people who were in a bad way and had connections to himself and friends. As he said in his text to me, Rebecca could lead on him, lean on him, and in turn he could lean on her. This even extended to Rebecca's friends on occasion. He also commented on his relationship with Teresa, who was Rebecca's roommate for a time. At times, he would even stay at Rebecca, stay with Rebecca at Teresa's house. I don't ever remember Teresa and Rebecca being too mad at each other. Teresa was always nice to me. When I came back to work the first time, Teresa had made little Rebecca pins, and she pinned one on my shoulder. She was real sweet about it, and she helped me out a lot. Casey explained he was not upset when Rebecca decided to move away and start college. I'll stay your friend and help you out best I can, he explained, he told Rebecca. So when she didn't want to be alone, there I was. Me and Rebecca were good, he emphasizes. He said he was glad she was moving and leaving Mountain View behind. She promised to come and visit even though Casey had no plans to hold her to it. Like most people working at Sonic, Casey was broke. Although Rebecca randomly threw out the invitation for him to follow her to a better future, Casey said he was just too poor to move and he couldn't bear leaving his family. Finally, I wanted to clear up once 
and for all, those rumors about where the blood was located, how much blood he saw, and how he could have missed it. Tiffany, in some of the papers, it talks about blood in different parts of the house. So obviously on the bed, Casey, what I was told, which, like I said, when you ain't looking for something, you don't find it. The dryer was full of towels, basically, my guess, would be used to clean up everything. They did a really good job because I didn't see anything. But the detective said once you start looking where the trim is, they said they could actually see. They actually missed a few spots. But as far as exposed blood or anything like that, there was nothing. I'm telling you, I would have noticed if it was out there. They cleaned it up and concealed it. Break. I don't believe that for a fucking minute. No, not at all. (sighs) This guy knows way more than he's saying. You go in to get a a shirt from your house. Yeah, this guy. Your bed is stripped of the sheets. The mattress is flipped over. There's no pillows on it. Your dryer's running and your washer's running. And you don't think that's odd? This fucking guy. Okay. Yeah. There, there, something's not right. Something is not right at all with this guy. Something's wrong in Denmark. <laughs> rotten. Wrong, rotten, something's shitty, bloody, r- whatever you want to say. <laughs> something's rotten in the state of Denmark. All right. Back at it. Tiffany, were the sheets in the washer or in the dryer? Casey, there were two loads, one in the dryer, one in the washer. I couldn't tell you which one the sheets were in as soon as police saw... Any speck of blood, I was a suspect of foul play, under suspicion of foul play. Tiffany. So the towels and the sheets were there. That's really odd. I find it odd because I feel like somebody had to have known you and known that house for them to feel comfortable enough to do that. Casey, I'll tell you how that trailer is set up. There's only one hallway and the washer and dryer are right there in the middle of the hallway. You pass the washer and dryer. You put your hand on the washer and dryer as you are walking past them through the hallway. There's no room. There's no getting to know the house. Yes, the layout is pretty cut and dry. Basic trailer layout. I'm telling you, all you have to do is walk in and go and there's the washer and dryer. It is true that Casey has moved back into the house where Rebecca was murdered, but this also allowed Casey to measure the distance from the washer and dryer to the bedroom where he and Rebecca would sleep. From the doorway of the bedroom to the washer and dryer is just shy of two feet. Tiffany, I think what I was saying is for somebody to take the time to clean up, I feel like they had to know you and your schedule and know that you were not going to be there and that nobody was going to be there. Does that make sense? Casey, it does. I personally personally feel like kind of grasping. It could have been anything. I have no idea. The thing that hurts me the most about this is that I felt like I was close to her. I felt like if anyone was going to solve it, I would have some kind of information. But I didn't. I didn't have anything. The cops just looked at me and said said that there was a part of Rebecca's life that she kept from me. That's what police told me. I have tried to make my own decisions from what they tell me. I just felt like she would have been honest with me about it, about everything. Tiffany, I felt that way too because I know you guys were together. I don't feel like she would have kept anything from you i think what other people may have found odd is for somebody to take the time and wash and dry the towels that they felt comfortable enough to stay in that house for a good you know sheets or towels normally take 45 minutes to wash speed wash or 35 minutes but we're talking about this 
was 14 years ago. Did they even have speed wash? Probably not. So what I'm saying is someone knew your schedule and felt comfortable in that house. They did not feel anyone was going to come home and find them. Now, that is the end of the conversation that we have, but supposedly there is a part two. And we do not have that in our repertoire. One of the last things we want to touch on before we get to our theories is the letter. And George Jarrett and a lady named A.K. Barnes co-authored an article on August 3rd of 2016 that interviewed Rebecca's father as a follow-up on the cold case. Several days after the article was published, an anonymous letter arrived at her father's house. Someone claimed this is Rebecca's father's house, Dr. Gould. Someone claimed to have overheard a conversation in an Ozarka College parking lot from a group of people talking about Rebecca's murder. The letter states that someone in the group stated, we did that bitch, talking about Rebecca. They gave some descriptions of what people looked like, very general descriptions. The letter looks as if a female wrote it. Two women and a man approached another man with dirty blonde hair that was a student at the college. The male student is overheard asking the other three, quote, if they got it, end quote. The other three state that they, quote, killed her and drug her through several rooms of the house, end quote. The male killer stated, quote, there was a lot of blood everywhere and she put up a fight and screamed a lot, end quote. The letter writer stated they apologized for not coming forward sooner and they could identify all four of the people. The writer has never come forward. Dr. Gould handed the letter over to the Arkansas State Police and they believe that it is a red herring. Handwriting analysis was done on the letter and the writer was said to be a 20-something person, a.k.a. a college student. My belief is this was someone being a troll trying to place themselves into the case. And the reason I say that is if you can identify the four people, then you wouldn't give general descriptions. You would say person you get, one. You would give names. And it's not like Ozarka College is this huge college. If you've seen this guy around, the dirty blonde-headed guy, you know where he stays. You know if he drives a car. Like I stated, you could get a car's description, a car's tag number. Again, if you want more information on the letter, I suggest listening to Catherine Townsend's podcast. She does a great job going over all of that. Now, with that said... That's all we got. That was a epic adventure, my friend. Yes, sir, it is. We definitely strayed away from uh, our uh, typical podcast length. But again, I think it warrants it, to be honest. This is a crazy case, and it deserves to be thoroughly investigated. What's your theory? (laughs) probably the same as yours (laughs) I go back to Miss Siegler on cold justice if you've got one pencil it's easy to disprove or break that pencil if you've got one piece of circumstantial evidence it's real easy to disprove that but if you have a mountain of circumstantial evidence like we've gone over in this case yeah I think I mean honestly 
Casey has got to be involved. Somehow. There's so many unanswered questions that he, all he has to do is answer the questions about A is truck, did you or did you not go home? Yeah. And he hasn't done it? No. He hasn't done it? If I'm innocent, I'm in front of CNN, Fox News. Oh, you bet. New York Times. I'll sing it from the fucking rooftops, man. I'm telling all, brother. Yeah. And the fact remains that he hasn't, so that really just... And the fact that he lives in the fucking trailer where she was murdered. God, that's so spooky. You raised a child. You are raising a child in the same place your girlfriend was killed. That's... If you're his, if you're his wife, <laughs> are you sleeping in the same room? No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Not at all. Never. But let's go on the other side of that. If he's truly innocent, there's a scene out of the movie Wide Earth where he loses his wife, and I a mean, guy approaches him at a bar. I've and never he said, seen Wide Earth. It's good. I love Tombstone. It's totally different. You I wouldn't know, be. I know. I know it's different, but. I'm a tombstone guy. I am too. So but, I'm not going to watch Wide Earp. But anyway, in Wide Earp, there's a guy that approaches him <laughs> in a bar and bumps into him. And White's real rude, curt to him. And he goes, yeah. damn, dude, you're in a bad mood. Sorry. And he goes, I've been in a bad mood for seven years. And that's the time it took. That's the time his wife had yeah. passed to then. That's the way I would be. I would be a pissed off son of a bitch. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that he's not, it's just so suspect. It's so, it's just, I mean, he's doing, he's doing himself no favors. He is making himself seem extremely guilty, extremely guilty. And you can stop all of those. Just answer the damn questions. Yeah. So I think he's guilty. As I, I do too. I do too. And the, the people that suggested this case to us. Uh, they they think he's guilty as well. So, unfortunately, the Arkansas State Police will not release anything. They will not let a licensed investigator even look through the case files. Not even see autopsy photos, mm. diagrams, the layout of the house. Supposedly, the the county sheriff's office office had their crime scene unit on site for thirteen hours. 13 hours collecting evidence, and you don't release anything? I go back to the DNA. That's a huge circumstantial piece of evidence. If there's not any foreign DNA, then Casey, Rebecca, and Casey's dad's DNA fingerprints are all over that trailer. If there's nothing else there, then Casey's your guy or his father is your guy. And again, it's real easy to fix that. If there is foreign DNA, then for God's sake, come out and say, Casey McCullough is not a person of interest. We have cleared him on the basis of there is foreign DNA in there. His has been excluded. We're looking for a perpetrator with this profile. We've run it through CODIS. We've run it through everything. We've reached out to 23andMe, whatever they do now. Yeah. And we haven't found this person. That would clear him. It would, but... I mean, they can't. I don't think they can because I think he did it. This is just so frustrating. This is probably the most frustrating case we've it's done. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. 
on a personal note, <laughs> it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Frustrating. On a personal note, <laughs> I think this case hits home for me because she reminds me of a young lady that was tragically killed in a car accident that I coached when I coached softball. And when I say reminds me, I mean she's the same height, she has the same haircut, she has the same facial structure. And so this has been a very, very difficult two weeks of researching this. And I feel like I'm emotionally invested in this case beyond what I should be. But I feel like I know, like I stated earlier, as a teacher and a coach, I know 10 or 20 Rebecca's. Yeah. You 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 have no choice but to to experience someone like this. I've All seen American girl sweet as pie. I've seen a young lady that, and I didn't have any hands in it, but my assistant coach did. When she was a freshman, he took her out in the hallway and he read her the ride act, told her she was better than the way she acted, she was smarter than the way her test scores proved, and she needed to get her crap together. She needed to make something of her life. Mm-hmm. And you know what? She, she did. did. She did. She made it a phenomenal turnaround. She could have been a statistic. She could have stayed in that that realm that she was brought up in and there was a lot of just nasty shit going on and she chose not to do that. She's married. She has three beautiful kids. She has a wonderful job. I just feel like Rebecca's life was taken so soon that she had made her mind up. She was going to better herself and and just no reason. No. I mean, just no reason. No reason whatsoever. It's that's what's so tragic. It's just she should still be here. She should be an aunt to her sister's kids. She mm-hmm. should be a mother to kids of her own. Mm-hmm. She should be a wife of someone. She absolutely should have a career. It's just we usually don't say this, but God pray for my liver because <laughs> I'm going to try to drown this one. No doubt. So. You know, our theories are not very long because we we kind of put our theories all throughout this case. Um, if for some reason we have any sway in this case or if anyone out there is listening, just get Casey to answer the basic questions. That's all he's got to do. And then the family can move forward. The investigators can move forward. Everyone can move forward. And if you're the Arkansas State Police, get off your ass and release some of these details. Yeah. You know, I, just, I don't understand this whole... You had a prime opportunity to take this case before a panel of experts, and they could have went through the case file microscopically, and you would have had forensic pathologists, you would have had former coroners and medical examiners and for God's sakes, the guy that caught the Unabomber to go over handwriting analysis and statement analysis and, and the lack of, I become more adept at statement analysis this week than I ever wanted to be. But now you read stuff and what they're not saying is just as damning as what they are saying. Yeah. 
You're absolutely right about that. The doublespeak in his interview with Tiffany, the doublespeak in his inconsistent statements. Again, you're not doing yourself any favors, buddy. No. He did not convince me that he was innocent. Nowhere nowhere close to convincing me he was innocent. When you're friends, I go back to the best friend statement. Hey, man, friend to friend, did you do it? (laughs) I wouldn't have to ask you that. I I really wouldn't. I would be here if something happened to Mrs. Coach or she coach and I found out and I came to you, we would leave no stone unturned. If I had to get some buddies of mine in a pickup truck and bring somebody of question to you, their statements couldn't be put into a court of law, but by God, we'd know what they knew. Absolutely. And you can't tell me in the state of Arkansas there ain't a truckload of boys that can figure out. I put his head in a vice. Just like the movie Casino. <laughs> Charlie I, M? Am I funny to you? <laughs> Charlie M? You think I'm a that's, funny guy? That's good, fellas. <laughs> that's a completely different movie. Oh, that's true. Sorry. You made me pop your your eye out of your fucking head for, Charlie, <laughs> for a low-life piece of shit like Charlie M? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Recommendations. I'm gonna recommend recommend the the uh, the Facebook page uh, missing the the mm-hmm. unsolved murder of Rebecca uh, Gould. Gould, I got it. <laughs> That's the 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 person that runs that page is the one that uh, suggested this case for us. Um, it's it's a very good page. Uh, I would also recommend Helen Gone, though that. The, the people that run the pages for Rebecca Gould, they, they, they're they a little contentious with Catherine Townsend, but I do think that she does a wonderful job. I'm not going to... The Helen Gone Season 2 with... Um, Janie Ward. Janie Ward was phenomenal. And we based our whole episode off of her yeah, and, podcast. And we actually reached out to her then, and she was very gracious to us then. She follows us. I don't know if she listens. Hopefully she does. We do have plans to uh, possibly do an interview with Miss Bucoltz or Miss Townsend, kind of a follow-up yeah, episode to I this. Mean, um, they probably won't be back-to-back because I can't take no, much more No, this, this is just too much, man. I also recommend the uh, Facebook page, Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould. This is a page run by Miss Bucoltz, and if you happen to get on that page and scroll to the bottom... She has the actual statements that she has dis- that she's transcribed, and they are towards the bottom of the the Facebook page. And that's piggybacking off yours. But my recommendation of the week is this: totally off subject, <laughs> but after this case, you well, need something. Go for it, man! If you enjoyed Tiger King, <laughs> I did find I, I did the documentary. I did very much enjoy Tiger King. <laughs> find the documentary. <laughs> The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. Oh, that is this. It is a train wreck you can't turn off. No. But if you like Tiger King, you'll love yeah, that, that one. That's a, that is an amazing documentary. Those people are insane. She smashes hydrocodones <laughs> off the back of a toilet <laughs> in a strip club and snorts it the day before she goes to rehab. And that's yeah. at the end of the documentary. Yeah. So you can imagine what's before that. <laughs> well, let's wrap this shit up, man, because this is just too much for us. 
All right, man. You got anything else? I do. I really don't. I think we did it all, brother. I agree with you, and I'm exhausted and deuces. <laughs>